So, good morning again. Today, we would like to bring you on a journey, and the journey is to drive sustainable productivity in cement and in mining. Before I start with the presentation, I would like to give two small informations. After each session, one or two questions are possible. After the total presentation package, we will be all on stage for a Q&A. And second, you will recognize we have no gifts for our visitors and guests um, here in the room, but we have for each and everyone who participates here a tree which will be plant around the world. So more than 100 trees will get planted today in the F.L. Schmidt facilities around the world. So the day looks like as follows. We start with my introduction. As the group CEO, I have the right to yeah, set the scene. Then Lars will come up with the financial performance and showing how we drive financial performance. Then Jan, as the president of Cement, will talk about the cement market and the strategy. Manfred for mining does the same. Then we have a lunch break and going into the digital presentation, what Michael will lead. And then we have the regional perspective. We have one region president here from um, Sub-Sahara Africa Middle East region. And then I make a wrap up and then we have the Q&A. Today is about a journey, what we public and marketing. And the journey actually started close to 140 years ago. We as F.L. Schmidt were an engineering company, predominantly in cement. And today, we transformed over the last few years and actually decades into the leading supplier of productivity in cement and in mining for big projects, for engineered products, for products, and for services. We have a very strong digital foundation and a clear setup for sustainability. And in the future, we will be the productivity and sustainability provider number one in cement and in mining. And we will inform how we will do it, and we will inform why that is important, not only for our financial performance, for our overall performance and especially branding and marketing. When we look into the industries where we act, cement and mining, there is growing wealth. Yes, the markets are very, very volatile, but there is growing wealth. There are more people moving from the third world to the second, from the second to the first world, and that drives consumption of commodities. We have rising population, we have urbanization, and we get more electrified, we get more digital, where the content of the special commodities like copper get relatively higher than in the time before. We have supply trends. We know that our locations of our customers are getting more remote. We see that. We know that the ore grades are falling, and we know it gets significantly more complex to take the ore out of the earth and to make a real commodity, a metal, or the cement out of it. And we have something new in the last few years in the importance. We have so-called political barriers. We have trade wars, we have import duties, we have export duties, we have a lot of taxation pressure in all the countries where we act, we have currency fluctuations, and we have big political influence into the business. Since the financial crisis 
it increased quite a lot. And last but not least, in the industry, there is the biggest change what we see. In the last one to two years, sustainability got a complete different demand and level of importance than I ever saw in more than 30 years of my career with anything what happened in both industries. And the run for efficiency, the run for productivity, the run for being always profitable no matter what happens in the market is very important. And with that, the innovation and digitalization. To be a full-service provider is a prerequisite as a premium supplier into both industries. If we then look into the markets, you see on the upper slide mining, and there we show actually the global copper consumption. It's the dark line versus the capex trend in mining. And it's clear we are in a growth cycle. And it's clear that consumption is growing too. And copper is a very good indicator. You know that the PMI and the copper... Um, curve is actually giving a lot of information how business goes. If we then look into cement, the graph below, you see that the cement consumption is still growing, but the investments are since 2008, we can say since the financial crisis, relatively flat, which puts a lot of pressure on customers in the cement industry to get more productive, to be more agile versus that what they face in the market. So what is it what we do as F.L. Schmidt? What are we doing each day? On the left side, you see the production cost in, for copper in year by year since 2016, and above, actually, the spot price for copper over the time. Our job is it to maximize the gap between the cost and the spot price at any time, at any location, at any customer in the world for mining. On the right side, you see a world map with the cash flow, the free cash flow 2019 in cement. And the red one is negative and the dark blue one is positive. And for the ones who know a little bit cement industry, you know that, for example, China, which is dark blue one, where a lot of free cash flow is produced, has a huge overcapacity. It's a clear proof that cement is not always following that what we normally have in global business, where demand and price is going yeah, in a kind of a relation. There's a lot of political influence. At the same time, you see a country like Brazil, red, which indicates people there's not a lot of business, and it's exactly vice versa, because the customers need us in such a situation to come back on the positive cash flow. And there we are. We are with them. If they have a lot of money to invest, we are with them. If they don't have a lot of money to invest, to help them to get back on track and earning more money. That's our value proposition. That is what we do. When we then look into the competitive landscape, on the top line you have mining, and you see our exposure in the mining industry. We are early in the process with our laboratory um, equipment and analyzing. We know what we get out of the pit to make it like that. We transport, we can make in-pit crushing. We go through the whole line up to the smelting part. And as you see, this market is divided in two areas, what we call the premium and the mid-market. And the premium market in mining is very strong and has a big share. And there we see 
that actually out of latest news, we have a consolidation. So the amount of pairs in that premium segment, segment decreased. If we then look into cement, we are definitely the full line supplier and provider of services at any point in cement. No matter, like in mining, no matter what you do with us, we can calculate up and down which impact it has on the whole value chain for the customer. This is a very strong position. When we look into the peer group, same like a mining, a premium part and a mid-market part. But the mid-market part in cement is significant bigger than in mining. And there's always the myth out that we compete with the mid-market. We don't. We act in the premium market. A lot of mid-market peers are good customers of us. The difference further is we have a lot of single equipment players, premium players, especially out of an area which is in the south of Denmark. And our advantage is no matter where we go in, we can calculate whatever we offer for the full line for the customer. And that is, as I said, a very strong position. I would like to look back to that, what we said in 2017. This is the Capital Market Day announcement 2017, where we said the structural growth in cement is in the market 3 to 4%, and we will grow 2 to 3% on top of it. We had a growth if we take the order intake from that time up to the quarter three of 8%. If we take the revenue as a growth, it's minus two. And this profit over growth strategy, where Jan will talk about it, and the importance of increasing service will explain that. If we then look into mining, we said in total seven to nine percent. If it comes to the order intake, we are actually plus nine percent, so in the range. And if we take the revenue, seven percent, we are in the range too. Out of that, what is our financial performance? In 2013, when we really entered into the recession, our revenue was higher than the order intake. And we had actually the low point of the order intake and revenue in 16. And the profitability had a similar trend in it, what you see as the red line. And actually the target was to go there out step by step towards the 10% to be in the range 10 to 13%. This year we messed up, and we will give information. We gave information on the quarter three announcement. We will give today some more information. So in growth, actually, we did as we wanted, selective growth. Cross-margin, we have to improve. That's an area where we have to improve. The product mix and the importance of service will come out today. Cost is fairly much under control. We have a very good cost leverage. We actually keep the cost more or less flat, no matter that we grow quite a lot. And focus on cash for us is very, very important. So out of that, we keep the 10 to 13% long-term target on the EBITDA. But we take a step in between what we say mid-term, the 10%. And we will explain today how to come there. But I can give overall a summary how we will do it. The first thing is, you see on the left side, a graph with the profitability and the volume. We will go on to grow in volume our service and in profitability. And we have big, big opportunities for that. We will do the same with products. And if it comes to projects, we will predominantly only work on the profit increase of that kind of business. Which means we will not go for 
big business if it's not profitable enough for us. How are we doing that? We have a business model which is built on being in big projects, which is built on being in process, which is built on being in all the core products as well as all the services. That's our business model. We introduced a new organization in the mid of uh, last year to be closer to our customers. And Dion will talk about that. On top of it, we have our digitalization, what we clearly see as an enabler. You will be surprised how much already today is digitalized and how we use that to be more efficient on our own as well as with the customers. And last but not least, the sustainability, what we see as the main drivers in the future for mining and cement. And that is what we call the mission zero. And we will allude to that quite a lot. When we then look into the earnings model, what we have, you see here two graphs on the right side. It actually, the upper one explains how we acted before. We designed, we manufactured, we sold, and we have aftermarket. And after a time, it fades out, and then you come again with the design, manufacture, and sell. In the future, and partly already today, this is not the model any longer. We design, we manufacture, we sell. Yes, we go in and having the aftermarket, but it's more the operational performance takeover what we do. More the troubleshooting 24-7. Asset health. We are permanently with the customer. And we can do that, as you see on the left side, because we are in these three legs. No matter to which customer we go in cement and in mining, we always can propose productivity improvement at any site, no matter who delivered the site, and no matter which commodity it is. It is then, of course, to the customer, if they like to invest for that, what we propose, the money. But we can do that, and we do it already. If we then look into the structure, we changed last year in a structure from four divisions before into two industries, and doing all the aftermarket and standard products through seven regions. This brings us closer to our customers. This covers what we call the white spots. White spot means areas, geographical areas, where we are not offering everything what we have, or customers where we are only selling one or two of the products from the whole product portfolio. Dion will go into quite a lot to explain what it really means. It brings us better and faster. It brings us local. It brings us local in the supply. It brings us local with the inventory. It brings us with the local language to understand our customers better and to help immediately. This is the possibility to offer with competence centers where the core competences can fly in and fly out, giving at any point, at any time to the customer the best service. When we then look into digitalization, digitalization is at first a cannibalization of the existing business because it means that you can use your equipment better and that you need less aftermarket, less service because you're wearing spare parts and your whole maintenance setup. If it's digitalized and if you can predict it better, you actually need less. That is what we call cannibalizing. But out of that digitalization, the ones who are doing it right, the ones who are in forefront, they will capture more business, the new business on top of it. 
because you can go in and doing that on any equipment from any supplier at any point of time and any location. You get full control and full insight into that what the customers are doing. You really partner up like a couple, like in a marriage. And that exposes you to significant more business than you could have before. That's the positive with the digitalization. If we then look into sustainability, we as F.L. Schmidt, as well as our suppliers, our impact on sustainability as a company, what we do per day is actually not a lot. If we look into our CO2 footprint, the total CO2 footprint of my company of 12,000 employees is equal to a month production of a three and a half thousand ton cement plant here in Europe. Then you know what our impact as a company on the CO2 is. But our impact on the customers is significant bigger because the customers actually own the CO2 emissions. They have it. They make the big impact. If cement as an industry, when you look into it, is actually not large compared to other industries, but it stands for 8% of the world's CO2 emissions. And we can work on it. We can help customers to get best in class in that area. So our impact is direct and indirect towards the customers. And that is what they demand from us. And today, as we said, in, or as you saw in the press announcement, we launch F.L. Schmidt Mission Zero. Towards zero emissions up to 2030 in cement and in mining. What does it mean? At first, we focus on four of the sustainability development goals. It is six and seven, it's 12 and 13. It's about clean water, it's about the energy, it's about responsible production, and it's about climate actions. These are the areas where we as F.L. Schmidt, with our technology and with our service, can make a real change. We will be able to offer a CO2-neutral salmon plant in a few years. That is possible. We will not have all necessary technologies in-house, and we will not run for it. CO2, um, yeah, collecting and working with CO2 will be not our core, but we will offer all technologies around to make it happen. Everything what we can influence, we make CO2 neutral. And that's a statement, and we can do already a lot today. The question will be then, why doesn't it happen more? Because it makes the cement, if I take cement as an example, quite expensive. If we look into it today, if we would use all the technology, what we have and what we have to develop more, then a ton of cement can be easily 10 times more expensive because it's then a unique installation. It has to get used more, more cement uh, customers have to use it, then it gets automatically relative cheaper, which means it's a huge business potential what we have in front of us. And don't believe that only cement is a big CO2 emitter. You have it actually in copper, you have it in iron ore, you have it in all things what mining is doing, not only on water, on CO2 too. So, when we look into the potential, what we have, yes, there is a premium market, yes, there is a mid-market, but with digitalization, with sustainability, the premium market gets extended quite significantly. 
and that is good for us. We have today already quite a lot to offer, and we will go into that. My colleagues will show you a lot. And we will have a bigger market size than we maybe believed a few years ago. And that's good. So today, again, it's actually a journey from a yeah, 140 years old coming from here. Engineering company in cement into the leading one in sustainability in cement and in mining. And with that, I would like to have Lars on the stage to talk about our financial performance and how we drive it. Yeah, so uh, uh, what I will talk about today is how we drive financial performance in, uh, in the new structure. And uh, I have to say that in the new structure, we really have a lot of new opportunities for driving uh, financial performance. What you will see from today is that we have good opportunities for driving more growth in service, like Thomas showed, and we can measure uh, that at a more detailed level. Uh, we can measure more in more granularity how we drive margins in the specific areas. Uh, and also, <clears throat> the new organization gives us a lot of opportunities to drive up more efficiencies and make certain that we can keep our SGNA cost uh, stable even when the top line grows, and that should give us operating leverage. So, for getting from the profitability level we are at today into where we want to be in the medium and long term, it's all about growth in service, it's about operating leverage, and about, it's about making more money in each offering that we sell. And what I'll show today is uh, how we deliver on that. So the new uh, organization that we implemented roughly a year ago have given us a lot of new data that we can use to run the business, and I'll give you some examples of that. We can do more benchmarking. In the new organization, we have a more simplified uh, organizational structure, and there we can implement the uh, simplified footprints where we basically consolidate things. Um, back office efficiency, we'll talk about that, and last but not least, uh, how we drive cash in the company. So here we have uh, the old structure and the new structure. In the old structure, if we take an example here, if you take this, uh, the cement business, this was primarily big projects in cement. In the old days, or in the old way of working, we did not have regional uh, measurements on this. So basically this was global uh, performance in terms of capital projects in cement. In the new way of working, we have split that out, so now we measure it on how much money do we make by region in this area. And it gives us a lot of opportunity to really benchmark all regions and make certain we drive in all parts of the business. We also had a country structure where basically uh, we could only consolidate at a country level. Now we've moved that to the regional level and we'll give you some examples of how that works. And we had sales forces that basically covered the cement, the customer service, the minerals and the product companies. And there it was difficult to get synergies out between them. But now you have implement that as a structure where basically the sales force in a region are working together as one team. And you'll see from uh, Dian's presentation how that is giving us a lot of benefits. I will focus primarily on, uh, on what you can say, the regional, how we manage these, uh, and how we, from uh, the common functions, so in procurement uh, and IT are supporting uh, uh, across the two industries, so what we have done when we implemented the new structure was to basically take all revenue streams and uh, put them into uh, different order types that had commonalities across the two industries. If you look at the service part, uh, the service part is to a very large extent driven by the regions. 
And you can see we have four categories of business. Spare parts, wear parts, which can be very high margin. We have service and upgrades, which has a lower margin. So by splitting up the whole revenue and order intake into these categories, it enables us to benchmark, are we making increasing our spare parts margins all the time, or is that decreasing? So now we have granularity by region on what we make on the various categories. It also enables us to see how we're performing on, uh, on working capital, where if we grow in projects that comes with very, very little working capital and often negative, whereas if we grow in spare parts, that comes with inventory and high margins, and therefore it drives up the working capital. So the new way of working have given us some opportunities to really focus on what are the value streams we have in the company and how can we support the different value streams. And when we talk about uh, uh, procurement and other things, you will also see that procurement have been designed to support these different types of businesses. As an example, in projects, there is commonality in the way we work in cement and mining. And of course, you can take synergies out between the two and make certain that you have a really fit-for-purpose uh, procurement organization that uh, serves the both of them. And here is just an example. If you look at how we benchmark the regions, we split uh, the order intake into service and capital. And what is really important is that the service business have to grow in all regions all every year. And of course, that's maybe easier said than done. But before, when we did not separate out service as much, if you got one big capital order, of course, you could uh, uh, get away with not performing on service. This new structure makes us, enables us to really say, in all the regions, you have to get more order intake from service, and we can benchmark that across the regions. And also, in some regions, we see that we have a high market share. In other regions, we have a low market share, and we can set targets. So in the regions where we have a low market share or a low share of wallet, we can give targets that are higher to these regions than to the regions that have a high market share. At the bottom, you see capital orders for the seven regions are very volatile. So... It's really important when we benchmark the different regions that we strip out capital performance from the annual performance measurement because if you get one big project, you could really do well in one year and then the next year you will look quite poor because there was no opportunities in the market. So what we're doing here is that the capital order business is executed by the two industries so that we make certain that we have global competences and we have, uh, what you can say, a pool of uh, uh, employees that can service all the seven regions and we get the critical mass in here. So this has helped us a lot in terms of benchmarking uh, the regions and make certain we drive service performance in particular and ensure that we can have the right uh, staffing level for, for the capital orders. We have the same uh, granularity on, on contribution margin where we both on the orders we book and the orders we execute, uh, so on the revenue part, can see what is the margins in the seven, six categories for all the regions. And there say, are we uh, under pricing pressure in certain regions or, or some regions uh, increasing prices and, uh, and making more of, of what they do. So a lot of opportunity to, to drive performance. So what is the, the overall business? We have the two main PLs, which is uh, the uh, cement and mining PL. They are the sum of the seven regions. So when you see uh, Dian's presentation uh, in a little while, he is one of the regions, so he has a responsibility to drive uh, sales in both uh, cement and mining. But they roll up into the two, uh, two main uh, PLs we have in cement and mining, and of course the group, uh, the group KPIs. The main KPI for the group is order intake, EBITDA, and, and cash flow. And where we measure the regions, they have targets on, on service and uh, separate targets on, on capital. 
so that we can really make certain that there is service growth in all the regions. And of course, we have working capital by all the regions, and we can ensure that there are targets for, for the regional SGNA costs, so they drive efficiency in that too. As you saw, we focus more on what kind of uh, business do we use. So um, we split out projects, which is a different skill set than if you do aftermarket. And in procurement, a couple of years ago, we presented that we have implemented category management. That has, of course, led to a lot of uh, savings from uh, combining all the, the global uh, procurement we have into the categories and make certain we have good agreements with, with suppliers. The next step we take in, uh, in procurement is to make certain that we have specific dedicated resources who can support the two industries in the different types of business they do. If you look at the product line procurement, what is that? That is a function that supports the PLM in the two industries to drive lower standard cost of the products we have. So when, uh, as an example, in cement, where we have done a lot of uh, work on, uh, on value engineering and setting up a more efficient uh, uh, procurement, there we work with uh, standard suppliers and really modularizing our, uh, our way of working so that we have parts commonality at different, uh, across different uh, products. That's one set of skills. Uh, project management in procurement is something where you have people who are really good at buying for projects. Um, they, of course, use product line procurement to, uh, to buy for the products. So all the standard products that is in the project will be done by the first bug. But in, uh, in big projects, you have a lot of steel, which you don't, don't buy from, uh, from standard suppliers. So we have a set of suppliers that we use uh, more regional and where we can really go out and, uh, and go for really low-cost uh, sourcing for, ex as an example, steel structures. Aftermarket is a, a separate skill set where it's all about speed and agility and how we can support uh, with uh, quick quotes for, for the business out there. So the next evolution in our procurement efforts is to build on category management and the efficiency and this we have to support the various uh, offering types we have in the business. And here is an example of uh, one of the efficiency levers we have. We have a big uh, assembly center in China, in Qingdao. What we have done over the last uh, number of years is we've uh, moved 30 products from around the world into this assembly center. Uh, and you saw in the announcement that we'll have more footprint optimization as part of the business uh, improvement program. This is by moving some of the products we have in smaller centers around the world into this facility. The benefits of having it in, in Qingdao is it's a place where there is a huge base of suppliers very close by who have a lot of manufacturing capability. And with our ambition of being asset light, that of course enables us to move, uh, what you can say, equipment manufacture to, to China. And then we assemble it in our center, but we outsource the manufacturing to sub-suppliers. And there's a whole range of, uh, of efficient suppliers just around this uh, facility. So this is one of the really big enablers we have for driving uh, cost out of our supply chain. Digital is the big theme today, and uh, here is just an example of what we do and how that helps finance in driving uh, the various parts of the business. The product knowledge we have in the two industries and the regions, together with the connected products that you will see examples of, as well as the analytics we're building up in digital, gives us better leads in terms of what customers need what and when they need it. That enables us to forecast, and that basically gives us uh, some data insight into how much should we grow in the various parts of the business and what do we need to have in our inventory. 
So digital also helps, what you can say, finance in driving uh, more performance because we have better data to actually uh, uh, support the business in uh, driving inventory as well as growth. One of the things we have done, uh, and here we have an example from procurement, one of the initiative, uh, efficiency initiatives we've delivered in procurement is that we've taken a lot of the procurement that before was sitting around the world and moved it into our shared service center in Chennai. What we're now doing is we have taken uh, robots in that will basically automate a lot of these processes where instead of having uh, people typing in the, the purchase orders and going into all the systems, we have uh, bots that do all this work and we process more than 10,000 lines by bots at this point in time and it's a number that increases uh, all the time. So that gives us a lot of efficiency and actually a lot of speed because these uh, bots, they, uh, they never sleep and they just continue to work. And then we can take our colleagues and add them into where you need uh, skills. In finance, we also use bots. There we also have a lot of employees in, uh, in the shared service center. At, we are now at 20 people we've taken out from our shared service center by using bots and automating uh, standard processes. So the next evolution in our shared service center is really we've taken a lot of the standard work, moved it into our shared service center, and because it's repetitive tasks, a lot of it, we can use uh, bots to actually automate some of these uh, jobs away. How do we drive efficiency in the in back office? On the chart here, you can see how big a percentage of our global revenue is on our core ERP platforms, Epicor and Oracle. Um, and as we move up this uh, list, it enables us to move more work to our shared service center and automate them. And it gives us a lot of better data to actually um, support the business with uh, relevant information. So what we do is we have global uh, cost owners. It could be finance, it could be procurement, it could be HR, where we have a person who is globally responsible for all the functional costs in this area. They can then optimize across uh, industry, region, and group. So even though we have different organizational units, there are some people who look across. And we use the shared service centers and centers of excellence and bots to drive uh, cost out of these uh, various groups. In the regions, we are also driving cost out because before we had country structures, now we have regional structures. Um, and I'll take North America as an example. Here we've taken six uh, different ERP systems and moved all the entities into one. Uh, so Mexico, Canada, and the majority of U.S. is now on one ERP platform, uh, and there will be more entities coming on in 2020. So basically, you take a whole region and try to consolidate everybody onto one platform. That means you can have one finance team that does reporting. You can have one treasury person. You can consolidate order handling and procurement and so on and so forth. So this is one place where we uh, have a good lever to, to actually dive uh, cost out of the business. If you look at admin code, here's uh, what we've done over the last couple of years. You can see we've taken uh, quite a bit of uh, admin cost out, and you also see what is it as a cost, uh, as a percentage of uh, of revenue. And this is a very important lever in terms of us getting our profitability up. We believe we can actually grow the business a lot without increasing our admin cost. And the reason why we can do this is, of course, that we try to manage it independently of the revenue. We know we have to invest more in digital. We're rolling out ERP. Initially, that gives extra cost, but afterwards, it saves us a lot of money. And then uh, site consolidation, which um, you will hear more about as part of the business uh, improvement program, will, of course, also help us in admin cost. In sales cost, 
this is an area where the focus is not to reduce it all the time. What we really want to achieve in sales is to maximize uh, our business and really grow as fast as we can. You will see from Dian that we are investing uh, quite a bit of money into growing sales people where we don't have business today. So you'll see a couple of good examples of that. That drives up the costs. On the other hand, Jan and Manfred uh, both have technical support people that can support all the six or uh, seven regions. So basically, we don't need technical support in all regions that can be delivered by the industries and thereby give us some scale benefits. And then, of course, we have the shared service centers who's also supporting uh, uh, the salespeople with, uh, with quotes and other uh, admin tasks. So that's also an efficiency lever we have in the sales cost. Free cash flow. Um, it is a big uh, focus for us, and uh, what I'll show you in the coming slides is, uh, is just a few examples of how it actually happens in uh, in F.L. Smith. Um, and it's a clear focus for us to uh, to get uh, the cash conversion up. Here, the first thing is just um, on the investment side. You can see that over the last many years, we've had uh, uh, investments that have been less than depreciation on the, on the left-hand chart. Um, we are an asset light business. We have a low level of in-house manufacturing, so the need to have big investments is not as big in our company as it may be in other companies that have more in-house manufacturing. Uh, on the, the other chart, you have what is our amortization compared to our capitalizations. And you can see, uh, while we have been in a difficult period of time, we have really focused on not investing or not capitalizing R&D uh, and IT investments and we've got a fairly strong track record of not capitalizing a lot compared to where we are on the amortization line. So uh, this has been a clear priority for us. As we go forward, our ambition is to keep uh, investments below uh, depreciation and amortization. But of course, um, if we have promising investments, it could be more investments in uh, rapid oxygen leaching or dry stack tailing, something like that. It may lead to increases in uh, capitalizations. But at this point in time, we really want to, to manage this very tightly. We are in project business. And in projects, uh, that has a really big impact on both the way we uh, generate revenue and the cash position we have in the company. We get a lot of questions around how this actually works in F.L. Smith. So this could be any industry that generates, that has big projects. So it's not F.L. Smith unique. This is basically... Uh, how big projects are being run. So if we start uh, at the left-hand side of the chart, uh, we, of course, have the bidding phase, where uh, before we actually get any orders, uh, you cannot see it in our financial uh, numbers, we only have costs. Then we get the order. That means we get cash in, and we have order intakes in our books. Um, then we have the engineering phase, which is really where a lot of our colleagues are very, very busy. It's in the beginning of the project. Uh, then it moves into the procurement phase, where we're uh, starting to procure all the assets from our sub-suppliers. That's the phase where we really generate a lot of revenue. But actually, the work in F.L. Smith is not as big as it is in the, uh, the, the first part of the, the project. Once we're done with the procurement and supplying all the equipment to site, you have erection and installation. And then lastly, we have commissioning. And then once the customer takes over the project, we go into the warranty period. When we had the third quarter announcement, we had uh, some extra cost, and that was basically to a large extent in, in the last phase where uh, some projects uh, dragged out in the commissioning phase, and therefore uh, we had extra cost. Uh, sorry. 
and um, and also some of the milestones uh, slipped, and therefore we didn't get the, the payments in from these customers. But basically, this shows you how it uh, the, the revenue is generated in the company and how the cash position is. What's important to say is, of course, that we start out by being quite cash positive on projects, and then as we move through the project, the cash positiveness is lower and lower as we move to the end of the project. So we are most cash positive in the beginning of the projects. We've also had quite a few questions around warranty provisions, and what we'll just show here is how it actually works. Additions in warranties is generated in proportion to the revenue we generate. So basically, um, for a certain type of project, we estimate how much have the historical uh, need for provisions been on this particular project or a type of offering. And then we will use that percentage to actually build up a warranty provision. And that works completely in parallel with uh, the revenue recognition we have. Then once we go into uh, the warranty period, once we've handed over the project and there's no more work going on on this particular project, then we have a period of time where we have the warranty provision on our balance sheet. If there is a, a claim from a customer, we will have used provisions. And then once we go out of the warranty period, we will reverse whatever warranty periods, uh, sorry, uh, provisions that are left on the balance sheet. So this is how uh, the warranty, uh, warranties work in, in FL Smith and other companies. Supply chain financing is also something where uh, we've had quite a few uh, questions to it. Uh, and what I'll show you here is uh, the historical figures as well as how it works. Our program is uh, now around a billion and it has not moved a lot over the last couple of years. What it does is it basically uh, enables uh, our suppliers to get the cash up front or uh, the cash once it's, uh, the invoice is approved rather than waiting the 90 days. It's a loyalty program to the suppliers. So actually, for us, it's important to be seen as a very good customer for the suppliers because in certain periods, uh, we will be competing with other uh, customers of theirs about who gets capacity. And we really want to be uh, a key customer of our suppliers. So this is a loyalty program where they know that if they sell to us, they will get the cash earlier because they can participate in our supply chain financing program. So the program in total is about a billion. Uh, but the billion, if we stop the program tomorrow, we will not have a billion less, uh, what you can say, uh, we would not have a billion more working capital. We would have roughly 400 million more working capital because we would not go from, let's say, 150 days down to zero days payment terms. We would go from 150 down to 90 days payment term. So the impact on our balance sheet is roughly 400 million. If you look into how, much, how big has the impact been on the cash flow in a given year, uh, then you can see that it's been fairly low for the last couple of years. We had a big effect in 2016, but now with a mature program, the impact is a lot lower than it was in the early years. And here we just show the maturity profile on uh, our debt facilities. Uh, we have just recently extended our, our big club deal with our core banks, so we have now... Uh, the majority of our funding expires in 2025. Uh, and here you can see the good group of banks we have. Uh, and we are quite happy to everyone that you signed up to this new facility. Uh, all the banks are here today, so, uh, so you'll find them around here. We have two extension options. So basically, it's 2027 before we, uh, we have to go out and renew that facility again. 
So how do we get to higher profitability? We had a quarter three where we had some cost overruns of 70 million. We've explained that and Manfred will give you more details on how we address this going forward. In the, when we look into our backlogs, we have had more material handling orders plus we have the impact from lower profitability of some of the projects we have in our backlog. That will give us roughly 1% less EBITDA in 2020 in the mining business. We had some underabsorptions. What are we doing to improve our profitability? First of all, as Manfred will uh, talk a lot more about, is we will consolidate our project business into fewer centers. What we realize is that we have too many places where we do projects. That gives us some challenges in terms of competences as well as balancing the workload in, in terms of the execution. We will do uh, a business improvement initiative where we will consolidate more. You saw the picture from, from China where we have an assembly center. We will move more products into that assembly center. We talked about uh, footprints that will be more uh, uh, sites that will be closed and where we'll consolidate at a regional level. And then, of course, uh, what was also happening is if you look into our order intake and service year-to-date and compare that with revenue, you can see that we have roughly had 450 million more order intake than we've had revenue, and, of course, that points into a better mix as we move into next year. And how do we get to the higher level of uh, EBITDA margin? You will see from uh, basically all my colleagues that service will have a big priority in terms of uh, what we do going forward, so we'll get more growth from, from service. We'll uh, recover in the mining capital business, go back to the, uh, the level of margins that we should have, and then you'll also see that there are opportunities to grow the top line uh, across the business. That extra top line will give us operating leverage because we'll keep a very tight lid on our SGNA costs, and then, of course, we have efficiencies we can take out in terms of footprint and the scale we have. So that is basically the key things that will really drive the increase in EBITDA in the coming years. So that was basically the messages uh, that I wanted to present to you today. And uh, Thomas mentioned in the beginning that there was time for a couple of questions, but he didn't give it himself. So uh, you can ask a, a few questions to both Thomas and me now before we, we move into the next presentations. Christian. Thank you. Christian Chorney from uh, Danske Bank. So, Thomas, on your slides, you show how you expect mining capex to grow and cement capex being flattish, but you also illustrate this issue of CO2 emission both in mining and cement. And the substantial additional cost of doing it CO2 neutral today Considering the indications you have also given on permitting and licensing, can you elaborate on the sort of medium-term risk that investments will, will not grow as much or maybe even decline simply because, not that your customers don't want to invest, but because they're not allowed due to permitting and licensing? Yeah, it's a very good question because the situation where we are in today is actually a little bit an in-between. The in-between means the permitting uh, departments like we have it in like we have it in cement or in mining very often don't know what they actually should permit and how to permit it i was myself with several customers one in mining several in cement in these permitting departments government offices and we had people sitting in front of us really not knowing 
how they should do it, what the, what the limits are, what the requests are. They simply said, you don't, you don't get a license until I'm done with it. So that situation we are already in. And that actually came out quite a lot since, um, yeah, actually since a few months. And it's a result out of several things what happened in the industry, like, for example, the tailing stem broken in, uh, in Brazil, and now all the discussions, what you saw yesterday or in the night on the news regarding Valle, etc. That brings a lot of the government offices a little bit into, oh God, what shall I do? I simply stop. So the risk is there that we short-term have a decrease, short-term. We are not thinking that this will go over years or quite a long time, because the demand is there. The pressure from the society, from the NGOs, politicians, media is very, very heavy. So they have to release. But we will have short-term, of course, um, uh, how to say, a decrease of capital demand. And I think everyone in the industry talks about it, that capital is going a little bit down. Just to clarify, so short term, would that be sort of 2020 and then beyond that you are not as concerned? That is what we see. Uh, we, we don't find any supplier at the moment not saying that capital order intake is under pressure. And we think this is the main reason for it. The macroeconomics, we, the impact of the macroeconomics, we have already since several quarters, since end of last year actually quite a lot. So that's not the thing. The thing is really this permitting issue. The discussion in the board meetings of the miners today is about each investment. Is that putting us as a company and as individuals into the risk to end up in court if you do it from a sustainability point of view? But that's a short-term thing, and that is what we not see over several years. And maybe just the last one. Is, is there any difference to how this impacts mining versus cement? The difference is mining, you see it immediately globally. Um, we had, I can say that it's public knowledge, Tia Maria, for example. They lost it. Then it was relatively quick back, a few months was quick back, which is very good. Um, in cement, it's more a local thing. You have some countries, they are not looking into sustainability at all, and others are very, very much on it. And to give that as a comment too, um, Western countries are not, in the technology point of view, automatically the advanced ones. We have countries which are significant ahead in sustainability in cement versus Western countries. China does a lot on environmental technology. It's a good market for our environmental technology today in cement. Thank you. Afternoon, that's Arsene from Great Swiss. Thank you for taking my questions. Uh, my first one is around the 10% midterm target. Could you maybe give us some color about the timeline and also the building blocks, and in particular, what are your expectations for pricing pressures and cost inflation, or what are your assumptions in this target? And the second question related to this, I guess to achieve 10%, you need to see quite a substantial improvement in cement margins to levels not achieved in the last five to six years. So what gives you confidence about um, margin expansion in cement? Thank you. Yeah, so if we, I mean, the, the, the midterm target is uh, three years plus minus, and the, the building blocks are really, and I think you will get a very strong sense of that uh, during today, that service will grow faster than capital. So you will have one element which is mix-driven. Then we will recover the margin, in particular in mining capital, that will be another uh, block 
Uh, and we will have uh, margin improvements in other parts of the business too. Um, and then the third thing is we do expect that we have in three plus minus years a higher revenue and thereby more operating leverage. So these are really the three blocks that drives the improvement from a pure financial point of view over the next couple of years. And then there are specific initiatives which Jan and, uh, and Manfred will talk about in terms of how do we drive uh, the various offering types we have. But if you look at an aggregated level, these are the three blocks that really drives it. Thank you. And maybe last one. In terms of services, um, at, at your Q3 results, you mentioned that Mix was 100 million um, kroner uh, headwind this year. Is this how we should think about Mix reversing into the next year, given that... Yeah, so um, um, we have to be very specific. We had a very ambitious revenue target growth in terms of how much we would grow from 18 to 19 on revenue. It didn't materialize this growth, and that was why we had to say in the middle of the year that uh, the mix between service and capital was different. It's still growth, but it was not as much growth in service that we had uh, uh, in the middle of the year, and that took us roughly the 100 million down. What we see next year is that you can see year-to-date that we've had more order intake than revenue, and that, of course, helps our margin next year. Whether it'll be 100 million or what it'll be is something we'll guide on when we come with the guidance at the end of the year. Thank you very much. So we have, of course, um, after each session... Uh, one or two questions, possibilities, and then we have the, Q, the long Q&A, and we will not leave until all the questions are answered this evening. No one has allowance to leave. Um, we have now a coffee break, which will go up to 12.20. Please start to use the time to look into the different booths what we have. My colleagues will refer to it, but it's really, this is top technology on each booth. And uh, one thing what I have to highlight, because we have really proud about it is we have a vertical roller mill there and we are in the Guinness Book of World Records with the world largest vertical roller mill. What we have installed in Bangladesh and it performs great. Thanks a lot. See you at 12.20. So thank you very much. Uh, my name is, uh, is uh, Jan Kjersgaard. I'm uh, heading the cement industry at Eiffel uh, Smith. I've done so for the last uh, little less than one and a half years, and uh, today I'll be speaking about uh, the market in the cement industry, our strategy, and that I fundamentally believe that cement is a good place to be in for Eiffel Smith. So the key messages I will uh, talk about is that fundamentally we see a steady good growth in the, in the cement uh, market, the demand for cement. We see a lot of change in our industry right now. Uh, we see a lot of focus on uh, productivity, sustainability, digitalization, and that's a very good fit with our strategy of being productivity provider number one. Strategy-wise, our main focus will be and has been for a while to grow our service, our upgrades, and our products business, and to have a selective approach on our projects business. It means that uh, we, uh, when we get a project in, we have a project opportunity. We look at uh, what is the potential margin we can get in a project, risk profile, cash profile, and so on. And then we take the uh, projects on that, that has a good match with us and where the customer values the uh, premium offering that we are coming with. That, in total, so growing our other offerings more than the projects part, will lead to a more stable uh, business, 
also a higher margin business. I'll talk more about that. If you look at the underlying uh, cement uh, demand, uh, then this is a typical demand curve for a country going through the GDP development. So on the left-hand side, you see countries with low GDP. So typically countries uh, go through this when you start urbanization, you build out infrastructure, hospitals, schools, etc. Then you have a steep curve of, uh, of cement consumption. And uh, when you then hit a certain level of GDP, you reduce again to a more flat and more, let's say, level of, of, of higher GDP countries. And you'll see on the right-hand side countries like Denmark, Sweden, Netherlands, U.S. And on the left-hand side, you see uh, countries with today lower GDP, uh, like Nigeria, Bangladesh, Philippines today, where we see good demand and also some demand for, for build-out. So fundamentally, a growing uh, Demand for cement, which is, is, is good, and then you'll see some outliers in the Middle East that, that use more than what is on the curve, but generally a good underlying demand. What does that demand mean for the market that we can capture? Uh, we have uh, on the left-hand side, you see what uh, available market to us uh, and what part of that is accessible. So what is the premium segment? What are the market's customer types where we are active? And then we split that up into capital and service. As you see, we have potential in both to grow. On the right-hand side, you see the, the service, where we today have an approximate market share of 15%, so definitely a good potential to grow that more, and that, that we have a very high focus in traditional services, but also the upgrades business that is also part of our service offering. Also on the, on the product side uh, and project side, we have opportunity that the main focus on capital will be on growing our products portfolio. And then on the far left, you see the last arrow. Uh, we believe we can push up the uh, accessible market a bit by, by our offerings in sustainability, opening up uh, markets that are today not open for us. And also new products, obviously. So industry trends. What are the trends that we see in the industry today? Uh, over the last years, we've seen expansions, and regionally we see uh, these expansions have led to uh, regional overcapacities, so more capacity than needed in the marketplace for cement. Um, that also has led to some regional pressure on prices and thereby margins for our customers. And on top of this, we see regionally that it's getting more difficult to attract both labor and engineering talent into uh, the cement industry putting uh, pressure also on how the plants are run and operated. And finally, probably the biggest single lever, Thomas talked about it also today, sustainability. We see a lot of pressure on our customers from regulators, countries, laws on, on emissions, CO2, and, uh, and we see it from societies getting more and more active in, in to, to the industry to, to reduce emissions and to take the sustainability agenda serious. And and uh, lastly, we've seen uh, also that some of the bigger investors have sent letters directly to our main customers, some of our big uh, customers, the big cement producers, telling them that if they want to have continued investments, they should take the sustainability agenda serious. So this is what is surrounding us uh, in the industry. What do our customers do uh, under these given frame conditions? Uh, they focus a lot on cash and, cash and profitability, 
And uh, they do this by whenever we meet customers. I travel the world uh, with my colleagues in the regions. We meet customers, and basically the first that the customers talk about is say, great that you're here, Ethel Smith. We like to work with you. We have a good brand name, but we need help. Uh, we need to produce uh, uh, better, more productively. We need a more sustainable, sustainable footprint. We need to reduce our emissions. And we need, to, we need to be able to run our plants in a more uh, integrated digital way so that we also can, can save labor and we can better uh, uh, optimize our processes uh, to reduce our emissions. That's the, the general trend. Whenever I, I visit customers, those are the top three questions within the first five minutes. Um, I'll talk about this from a service capital perspective. Uh, I will dive into deeper on how do we approach the sea sustainability, what are our offerings. And uh, then finally, I have some examples on how digital, digitalization is enabling us to, to do more business. On the service side, first we have uh, uh, circled here some of the areas we believe are going to be good for, for us, for for the service business in the coming period of time. Um, we have looked at what is the, where do we see sustainability demands, driving need for upgrades, where do we see high capacity utilization, the plants run a lot, and, um, and where do we see uh, also generally an expected demand increase. And so these are some of the markets. Uh, uh, Thomas showed, for example, that Brazil was red on cash, but we still see a good demand in the Brazilian market for services for upgrades because they, to counter this, uh, this uh, price level, they also seek investments. Um, same U.S., Europe, we don't see a lot of uh, new build, but we see a, uh, a lot of focus on optimizing the current fleet, the operating fleet, and on, in Europe especially uh, on the sustainability part. Um, then in, in Asia and in the Indi India and the Indian uh, in the Indian region, we have established a lot of capacity in recent years, so there we see a lot of new capacity and a lot of our capacity, and this new capacity gives us a good opportunity to grow our service market, our services, our spares, and, and our uh, asset management systems. Uh, and, for example, in a country like China, uh, we see right now uh, they, they make good cash, that you could see from Thomas's chart, uh, and they spend this cash in meeting a lot of the uh, environmental demands they are uh, meeting from the authorities. Um, finally, we are very active in all of these regions. We have feet on the ground through our regions. Uh, Dion will talk more about an example of how we are more active in, in, in our regions, but with our new structure, we are much better positioned to capture these uh, regional service markets. From a capital point of view, uh, on the left-hand side, you see the global installed capacity, uh, 6.3 billion tons of capacity. That's uh, 4, 000, approximately 4,000 cement lines are installed today. And uh, they, are, they see a demand today, average global demand of about 4 billion. So there is an overcapacity. Uh, we are seeing moderate growth, in the, as I said, in the, with the demand curve in the market. So the overcapacity will reduce from a global perspective but we see very strong local pockets of, uh, of demand. So some uh, countries where they do not have a lot of cement production today, but see growth in infrastructure and GDP, there we still see pockets. And what we seek is to be in these pockets, to be very active there together with our regions uh, and in our region structure, to be close to the customers and, uh, and be ready. 
on the capital side, we also focus a lot on our product side. That's part of our capital business. So with, uh, with a, we spend a lot of time and effort now in modularizing, standardizing our products to be more competitive, more standardized, and uh, to drive that to a positive business case as well. If, I look, if we look deeper into sustainability, then on the left-hand side, uh, we have marked up the, the parts of the world that today have uh, carbon taxes or emission trading schemes, basically putting limits or regulations on how much carbon uh, the cement plants and the industries in general can, can emit. And uh, then we've, uh, we've uh, say, taken Europe as a good example of, uh, of how uh, CO2 is, is controlled. So... Some years ago, uh, when the uh, carbon trading uh, system uh, was introduced in Europe, each cement producer and other industries was allocated a certain amount of allowances to emit CO2. These credits uh, are then tradable, and what you see in the curve from 18 to 19 up to today is the price for these credits that were allocated to the cement producer and other industries originally. So there's a lot of demand uh, for these uh, CO2 credits. So if you were to start a new cement uh, plant today in Europe, you did not have any credits allocated to you, you would need to go into the market, buy these credits, and that would cost you 25, 27 euros per ton, and that would equate to somewhere 17, ton, 17 euro per produced ton. That's a relatively high cost per produced ton, of cement to meet this, and this is what is inherently driving our business, what is driving the push to sustainability and is generating good opportunities uh, for us. What we have done is that we have uh, uh, done a calculation example here. As Thomas mentioned, today the global or the cement industry emits 8% of global CO2. That we could reduce to 7% with today's technology uh, without adding uh, a lot higher cost. Where the costly part comes, as Thomas said, is when we want to push it further down. Uh, we do not have all the technologies in place yet. But to 7%, we could come in a reasonable manner with today's technology. Just to have a feel of what does that mean, 1% uh, down would equate, would be the same as we would need to plant 485 thousand square meters of forest to, uh, to absorb the same amount of CO2. That equates the size of Germany. So uh, a forest of the size of Germany would be the same uh, CO2 absorber as, uh, as we could with producing from 8 to 7%. That equates to 258 million households, average household also, if they were fired or if they were uh, powered by fossil fuels, electricity by, and, and other fossil fuels. And then in the end, also the cement producers will lose money, oh sorry, will save money on, uh, on, uh, if, with this reduction. So a typical 6,000 ton per day plant would save 40 million Danish uh, per year by uh, reducing this amount of CO2 and investing in these uh, uh, technologies. So what, how do we see our role in sustainability and in the carbon agenda as F.L. Smith? We definitely uh, have a very strong ambition on being, on being the, 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 let's say, the, industry, the industrial provider of, of, uh, of solutions that can enable our customers to become carbon neutral. 
what we have done here is to draw up what does it mean and where, what are the main levers of, uh, of, of carbon in a cement plant. On the left-hand side, you see, um, the, the, let's say, the average um, generation of CO2, 13% from power supply, uh, if it's from, from fossil, 32 from, uh, from the burning of fuels for the, for the kiln heating process, and then 55% is emitted in the chemical process of, of when uh, the clinker is established. If we want to bring that to zero, which is definitely our ambition, then on the right-hand side we have marked up where we believe that our role is we basically will enable the industry on the full uh, flow sheet, on the full set of offerings that are needed, but we do not plan to offer all technologies ourselves. For example, on the power side, we don't plan to go into wind industry or solar, but we plan to have uh, our plants capable of operating together with renewable power. And then on the energy side and also on the, on the uh, let's say, the, the fuel side, we, we provide very high efficient products, reducing energy consumption, reducing fuel consumption. Um, we will provide uh, solutions for alternative fuels. Uh, there's a big push on alternative fuels, so, so having non-fossil fuels uh, into the cement plants. We do not, as we show here on the left-hand side, is what we believe the cement producers should do. We don't plan to go into, let's say, handling of waste and so on in the public society, but we will take it at the gate of the cement plant. And then if we continue, uh, then we have several low, low emission uh, products and lower emissions, and clinker substitution is also a technology that we see coming more and more in, basically substituting part of the clinker with less CO2 uh, generating uh, other raw material. And then third-party collaboration, for example, on carbon capture. We don't plan to start uh, having uh, technologies of a carbon capture ourselves, but again, we want to make the plant capable of operating together with carbon capture, and thereby we can bring the cement plant to, to uh, neutral carbon, carbon neutrality. Do we have solutions for this today? Yes, we do. And I brought some examples here of a very nice portfolio that we have today that actually we very actively pursue in the marketplace and is in very good demand out in the market today. Uh, we, you see the same, so it's basically split into emissions, into alternative fuels, into energy efficiency, clinger substitution and process optimization. We have a couple of examples here on the booth today. I, I urge you to go have a look. For example, the Lonox Calciner on, on the emission part, the top part here is a product where we basically can add that to an existing plant, reduce the NOx emissions uh, significantly. We've installed one uh, that is operating very well in Turkey now. We are commissioning one in India now, showing very good results. And what, what that means is there's a lot of limits for NOx emissions all over the world, and they, they are reducing a lot. And today, to meet these standards, you need a lot of ammonium uh, injection into, into the process to reduce the NOx emission. With this product, you can, in most practical cases, basically get rid of this ammonia um, injection, or you can reduce it to a very high scale. That has a double positive impact. You reduce NOx, but you also reduce the, NOx, the, the use of ammonia. And in the corner, you can go and see more about this. And another a good example is on the hot disk is... is, is uh, is a product that allows us to burn more alternative fuels in our, 
in our cement plant, uh, we sold a product today that, for example, uh, is taking care of most of the waste tires in a, in a country like New Zealand, in one cement plant. Um, a last example is uh, on our robotized labs that are here today also. Uh, we see a very big demand for this. So when you run in, a society, in, in, a, in an environment where there are a lot stricter standards and emission, you need to know more about your process. And here our robotized labs are they in very big demand. And in a country like China, for example, we have not seen demand for this product. We've sold more here in, in the last period of time and see a good continued demand. Just an example of what the sustainability agenda means for us. If we look into how have we structured ourselves to, uh, to uh, let's say, take advantage of this very good business opportunity we see around sustainability, we have split our company or our structure in the cement industry into four offering types. We have structured our organization this way. So we've set up a dedicated upgrades organization where we see one of the biggest, uh, let's say, potentials for growth in our industry right now. A, a team of very experienced uh, uh, process experts uh, that work then with global uh, cement manufacturers on, on how can we upgrade their plant to, to have less emissions. Um, if, for example, uh, let's say just 5% of the 4,000 lines today would invest in a small upgrade of 10 million kroner, which would be a normal upgrade. That's a business opportunity of 2 billion kroner. So it doesn't take a lot of, uh, let's say, parties to invest here, and it gives a good business opportunity, and we are very well positioned to take it because we have very strong offerings in this area. On the product side, we also uh, see good opportunities. For example, our packing business uh, gets a lot of demand from countries also like China and other countries where there's a lot of focus on work environment. It's not good for workers to work in a dusty, cement dusty environment. There's a lot more focus on that. Our packing plants emit a lot less dust than, uh, let's say, other traditional makes. And together with our filtering businesses, this is uh, also a good new, new demand circle that we see. Services with, let's say, with connected equipment um, is, is definitely a big driver also to uh, have a total process optimization of the cement plant. So we see a lot of demand for, for our service, our connected services. I'll come back to a few examples. And then finally, on the project side, we see good demand for, uh, for also grinding stations and so on in CO2-regulated uh, uh, territories. A few examples from uh, digital combined with our, let's say, sustainability solutions on the product side, uh, allowing a cement plant to run with 100% or much higher portion of alternative fuel. The, the downside of alternative fuel is it's, it is less stable. It's a less stable fuel. So that will basically give these uh, demand uh, peaks, as you see, if you just burn uh, more alternative fuel into your process. There we have uh, developed a new version of our machine, uh, our advanced process control uh, uh, software so that you can run the plants uh, with higher amounts of alternative fuel up to 100%, a lot more stable. That gives less wear, less emission, less energy consumption, and it's a very good example of how digital enables us to sell uh, other products and allows our customers to run in a more efficient and a more economic manner. Another example is if we take these process optimization tools uh, into, 
and, and combine that with our, let's say, very strong process knowledge that we have generated over years, and combine that with data analytics and data science, then we get, let's say, then we get a potential service to our customers that, that uh, very few others can, can, can offer, because we have the combination of process knowledge, digital solution, data analytics, and with our cloud-based and our connected equipment, our cloud-based solutions, we have established, or we have had for years, these 24-7 remote monitoring centers. So basically, we monitor the operation for our customers in, uh, in operation centers and combine all this knowledge. And if we see something starting to go wrong, we can either contact the customers or send our service people out. And again, this, this we have in more than 200 installations today, generating good uh, business opportunities for us and optimizations for our customers. Finally, what does this mean in financial terms uh, for our cement business? On the left-hand side, you see our uh, expected revenue bridge from today's level. We expect to see an underlying uh, market growth of, uh, of 1% to 2% over the cycle, so from the market. And there, of course, sustainability will be one of the drivers for that. Then we see, uh, we expect to reduce our revenue on the project side uh, with our, let's say, push for profitability. And we then grow the other parts. We grow a lot via uh, our white spot coverage. Dion will talk about examples in Africa, how, how we do that. We come with new technologies in the sustainability area. Uh, we have several very interesting technologies coming out in the foreseeable future. And at the same time, we drive a lot on our service side to, to, uh, to uh, generate more and more business. As you will also see in our order entries, we have been quite uh, okay in establishing a good order entry and a good growth in our service side of the business. These internal components, we believe, will also lead to a 1% to 2%. That's a net effect, so a reduction in projects and then an increase in, in the other elements will give a net effect of a growth of 1% to 2%. In total, we expect a CAGR over the cycle of 2 to 4% of, uh, for the cement uh, industry. What does, this mean? what does this mean in EBIT terms? If you look on the right-hand side, from today's level, uh, the mix effect will definitely be positive, so we will do less uh, projects and we will grow the other parts of the business more, the higher margin part of our business. We also have parts of our business where we do a lot of effort to, to increase our margin levels. That will be another lever, and the last lever is with the increase in uh, revenue, we see a better operational leverage that Lars also mentioned, and in total, that uh, leads to a midterm, uh, our expected midterm EBITDA range of 7 to 8%. So, with that, that's how we see the world. Sustainability is definitely a, a strong driver for us in the coming years. Our portfolio will change to have a higher service component, and this is uh, the result we expect to come out of it. So, any immediate questions before I give the floor to uh, Manfred? Yes, so yeah. Hi, Magnus here from, from UBS. Here's the question comparing slide 11 and slide 4 here. I can see that you currently have about 30% of the uh, accessible uh, capital market, and you see headwind from projects going forward. So it seems like you will try to grow your capital business. 
But still, you see headwinds from cement. So how do we square that picture? What's the uh, that, that picture shows, let's say, the opportunities for growth. And uh, but where we primarily, where we will primarily focus is to grow our products business. That's part of capital. Grow our service business. Grow our upgrades business. A lot around sustainability. That is where we will mainly focus on driving growth. Brilliant. Thank you. Klaus Antler from Nordea. Um, given the, the demand we see today within cement, that is mostly driven for, let's just not call it premium products. Uh, also, you mentioned that there is a pricing pressure due to oversupply. So when you discuss your new uh, solutions with your clients today, how do, do they react to you know, extra uh, capex, extra cost? Will they be able to pass that on to, to their end users? Or will this be a long multi-year process? I think the push for sustainability and converting the industry is not a one-year thing. That is a trend that we will see over many years. It's clear our focus for whatever we do, whatever our customers request, is that every solution we come up with needs to reduce emissions but not at cost. So basically the main focus for every development we do is to make it more efficient for our customers to produce uh, the cement. So we do not, it's not so that we say if you do this investment, the price of cement will go up a lot. That is definitely not our aim. But this is mean, if you take your slide, um, with this extra growth compared to the market, that is more into 2022, or when would this be phased into to, to the numbers or to the order intake? I mean, the focus we have on, on the white spots, the new technologies, uh, the push and service that, that we have had uh, throughout the last years that we will continue to do more and more coverage of new areas, more and more push and service. So it's, it's, it's not, uh, let's say, something new, but we have, we have a lot more focus on it, and especially the focus around sustainability. As you can see, we have had these products, but the, the way we market it now, go to market, go to customers, packages as part of the sustainability solution, that focus, that push is, is new, and that's why we established our separate upgrades business to drive these opportunities. Okay, thanks. All right, thank you very much. Manfred. Thank you. That's for me only, it's not for you, so it's um, a message. My name is Manfred Schaffer, and um, I'm responsible for the mining business uh, within Eiffel Smith. Um, I have the privilege and the pleasure today to talk to you about the mining industry and, of course, our strategy for this segment. I know most of you are quite familiar with the mining industry and the trends, and so I will not speak too much about the mining industry. I will focus more on our internal initiatives and actions, how we can use the trends and the developments in the mining industry to profitably grow our business. Before I go into the details, uh, just a few key messages that will be the red lines through the presentation of today. Basically, uh, we see a few mega trends that are impacting the mining industry. And uh, we believe it's a positive thing. Besides all the cyclicality and all the challenges, what you have in the mining industry, it is an attractive industry to be in. And I will talk to this uh, a bit more in a minute. There's two themes, as Thomas was already alluding to, it's the, the productivity and the sustainability that will drive a lot of these uh, uh, trends that we see in the mining industry. And uh, the way how we are positioned, uh, we can 
we can take certainly advantage of these trends. Because the answer to a lot of these uh, challenges in productivity and sustainability will be technology, will be new services. And we will be able to write these services based on our historical background and our knowledge. And last but not least, uh, when we will execute the strategy will, where I show you selected elements out of this, you will see that this will not only create a profitable growth, but it will also make our business more stable and more predictable. Going to the mining industry and why we believe this is an attractive industry to be in. Of course, there are certain global trends like the population growth, urbanization, and all these kind of things. But overall, of course, the commodity demand has grown roughly in line with the global GDP growth. However, what we see now in mining is a, a few other trends that will increase the demand of mining equipment. And this is, of course, on one hand, it's the dropping ore grades, the depleting deposits that will require that we have more runoff mine ore uh, to generate the same amount of metals. And what you see in the upper chart, you see that the runoff mine production is increasing at a much faster speed as the commodity demand. And of course, there is other of course, uh, trends uh, like the decarbonization and the electrification of our industry, the change to the electric vehicles has been a little bit slow, but it's coming for sure. And all this will uh, drive the demand for certain commodities like copper, lithium, nickel, and so on. And it will drive that in a faster speed than what you see in the GDP growth. And then on top of it, you have the sustainability challenge. When you watch the news, it's very clear that the mining industry has to respond to this. And the answer will be technology. And uh, we can provide this technology. And this is not a question of investments. It will be a question uh, that the mining industry has to invest in this. It's not an option. If you want to maintain your license to operate, if you want to obtain a license, a permit to operate, you will have to comply with increasing reg uh, regulations for the uh, environmental footprint. So overall, this is an attractive industry. And on top of this, despite all the um, pressure on the commodity prices and the increasing production cost, generally the mining companies have uh, quite a good cash flow. You have seen all the extra dividends they've paid over the last few quarters. So this is an industry that has enough liquidity to make the investments. They're at the moment reluctant to make the investments because of all the uncertainties in the industry, but they will come. And of course, um, if you have an industry that has the cash flow, that has the liquidity, and that has the need to make the investment, that's a good industry to be in as a supplier. Oops. Um, I've used um, copper here as an example to demonstrate a little bit the complexity and the different influencing factor. Why copper? First of all, it's an important uh, commodity for F.L. Smith, but it's also internationally seen as a good indicator of what is going on in the mining industry. Uh, what you see on the upper uh, chart is the commodity or the, the copper price. And yes, it is below $6,000 per ton, which is not great. You have seen the price has dropped in the middle of the last year, basically because of the uncertainties in the global economy and the industrial growth, especially also driven by China. China is approximately consuming 50% of the global copper demand. 
So a lot of people saying with the drop of the production and industry, production in China, the copper demand will drop. But what we are seeing is actually the opposite. Um, the upper uh, right-hand chart is showing you a constant increase of import of uh, copper concentrate into China. Compared to this year, year to date, compared to last year, the copper concentrate import to China has increased by 10%. How is it? That is basically because the copper recycling in China has some challenges. It is not so easy to find clean copper and recycle this. And the emission regulations in China are putting some pressure on the recycling of copper. So there's more demand for clean concentrate to be imported. But if there is more demand for clean concentrate, where does it come from? You see on the lower left-hand chart is there has not been a lot of new discoveries of good grade copper deposits. And in addition, what you see, the existing mines, of course, are going deeper and have more production costs, but also have dropping ore grades. So if you put all this together, of course, there's a demand to increase your productivity, but also there is a demand to sooner or later invest into copper without doing that. The forecast is between 22 and uh, 2024, there would be a supply demand deficit. So there is a reason why we have this reluctance at the moment, but we see still there are strong underlying trends. And you could do this for iron ore, for alumina, for nickel and so on. The picture is actually quite similar. And this is why we believe this is a good industry to be in. Talking about our position in this industry, Roughly, we have estimated the total available market to us is roughly 120 billion DK, where we are currently uh, accessing a little bit less than half, 55 to 60 million, uh, billion DKs. And we have, uh, compared to our main peers, a uh, relatively good market share. Um, but at the same time, when you look at the capital and aftermarket market share, in our existing accessible market, we still have room to grow. In addition to that, you will see there is a consolidation in the industry which, provide, which will provide uh, additional opportunities for us to grow. But it is uh, different initiatives to grow the total available market uh, or the, the accessible market by working with white spots, new technologies, and so on. And then, of course, it's also an internal-driven initiative, how we will change our product mix to grow more in the stable part of the business and to be less dependent on the volatile capital business. A short word about the underlying trends. Uh, I have talked already about this already, but um, I just want to highlight again why this is important. The dropping ore grades and the increase in productivity, at the same time, the lack of investment, of course, means that the customers are driving aging equipment harder. They need to produce more, which is providing great opportunities because they need more parts, they need more service. At the same time, of course, we can use uh, digital to be better connected and provide better services and have uh, a closer connection to the installed equipment, but also to our customers. And then, of course, uh, as I have mentioned, the maintaining and obtaining the social license to operate will create a lot of opportunities because this will require new technologies. And I will touch on the CO2 emission and water consumption just as two examples because they are most uh, dominant in the mining industry. With our knowledge 
in the process, in the projects, in the products and in the service, were ideally uh, positioned to take advantage of this. And also the merger of our uh, Finnish beers, we will have a, a competitor that has a similar wide offering as we have. So we are very bullish about the opportunities we will see from the trends in the mining industry. I have selected a few uh, actions and, and parts of our strategy just to demonstrate what does it all mean, what I'm talking about. And I will talk about, of course, the challenges uh, that we have in the capital industry and uh, in the capital business, the project business, and what we are doing about it. But I will also talk about the service business. I said there is an aging population of equipment out there, what we can do there. And then I will talk how digital will help us to to grow the aftermarket and to grow our customer intimacy. And last but not least, we'll talk about a few technology developments that will address the sustainability challenge. First about uh, the disappointing announcement we had to do in quarter three, and you're probably asking what is going on. What we had uh, was an execution model for our project business, which was based on our philosophy to be very close to the customer. That, of course, has meant that we had uh, execution of projects through many different locations and a very fragmented organization, which was difficult to manage and to control, but primarily we had the challenge that to have the right people, the right competence on the right project at the right time. In addition to that, we have tendency in the industry where the customers are more careful about their investments. And we see this stop-and-go approach. What I mean is, before you would get an order to deliver a plant, now more and more customers say, well, I'll give you an order to start with the basic engineering. Then you stop, then we make an update. I'll give you another uh, release for your detail engineering. Then you stop, and uh, you give me an update. Then I release the long lead time items and then you stop. So all this disrupts, of course, the, the flow of the project execution and makes it even more difficult for us to absorb uh, our resources and have the right resources at the right time. So all this has uh, led to certain uh, delays and cost overruns in our projects. And what we had to do is go back, look at, into our backlog, reassess if our assumptions for the future profitability of our backlog are still correct. And that has led to the um, adjustments in the quarter three. More important, of course, is also what we're doing about it. And we are implementing what we call the so-called hub concept. That means we are concentrating and focusing our resources for project execution in three hubs, a western, central, and eastern hub. And there we will have all the resources what we need in terms of project execution, commercial contract management, engineering, procurement. And they will have a critical mass. They will not depend so much on one or two projects, and then, of course, we can better manage the absorption. That doesn't mean that we are completely abandoning our concept of being close to the customer. They will still work with satellite offices, where we have people that will interface with the customers and also with the local suppliers. But they will report back to the, to the hub and therefore create an organization that is flexible, agile, but also the clear front-to-end responsibility is clearly defined. With this, uh, we can also 
make sure that we have the right people, the right competences in front of the customer whenever needed. And um, this will, of course, help us to better execute the projects and better adjust to the fluctuating capital business. Now, going from the capital into the service business, um, and um, here we have announced uh, some time back that we want to grow our wear part business. And now I'm talking about the metallic wear lining for mills and crusher application. What we're doing now in order to grow this business is we are creating a competence center in North America where we are already designing and supplying um, high-performance parts. This competence center will also connect it to a foundry where they can generate new alloys, develop better materials so that we can differentiate our offering from what is available in the market. At the same time, of course, we will also increase our in-house production with foundries in North America and in India, and also combine this with a more agile supply chain with third-party suppliers. At the same time, we are also expanding our offering for mill liners. We will go more into composite liners, which has certain advantages and certain applications. And by combining, of course, our mill liner and crusher liner offering with our global service footprint, we cannot only provide the parts, we will also provide the service, the exchange service, and we will provide complete wear solutions. We have over 500 mills installed, and when you estimate that roughly uh, each uh, wear liner uh, business from each mill is roughly 10 million uh, DK per year, you can already imagine the magnitude of the business we are trying to uh, attack here. But this is, of course, only our own installed base. If you look at the total installed base, it's, it's much, much bigger. And, of course, we will do that because our competence in designing mills, mill liners, and wear solutions is not only limited to our equipment. Now, I was saying, how can digital help us to generate more aftermarket business. And as you will hear later also from Mikhail, there's many ways how digital technology is helping us to run the business today. It's in the customer intimacy with the e-commerce solutions and all these kind of things. But what I want to focus here is the so-called asset health monitoring. What this really does is it connects our equipment through sensors, through the cloud, with our service centers. And by this, we can clearly have a good overview of what is happening with our equipment and can better plan our service. How this works in reality, we have tried to show on this chart. Our installed base has more and more sensors and they're collecting data, and this data are then transmitted to the cloud. From there, uh, and there's some analysis done when certain data is exceeding predefined boundaries, it will trigger an alarm. And this alarm will then be transferred to our 24-7 service center. The people will immediately know, okay, we have a problem. Um, and they, depending if they cannot solve it immediately, they can then trigger that service people will be dispatched and they can go to site. They can check if we have the required spare parts immediately. They can ship them to site. And they can do this in a very, very quick response time. And the quick response time means that, of course, it's better for the customer, the downtime is reduced, and, of course, the uptime and availability is increased. Now you say, okay, but uh, you're globally active. How can you make sure that you have all the time the right people, the right service technician with the right knowledge available? 
We are doing this uh, with uh, new technology, and this is why I have this helmet here. All of our service centers have now this type of technology where the service technicians have this type of uh, connect connectability with our, with our excellence centers. It's video, audio, data collection, and in, they're real-time connected with our service centers. So the service technician can go out, he can connect to the best knowledgeable people that we have in the company, and they can help them. It's real inter interaction, and this will really help us to make sure that the customer really sees benefit in being connected to us. It also, of course, gives us the benefit that we know exactly in what condition the equipment is in. And, of course, we all know that collecting data, data is the new wealth, and if we manage the data well, we can generate a lot of business out of this. Now coming to the technology part. And I was saying I will use a few examples to show how technology can help us to, to uh, work with some of the sustainability challenges. What I have here is a simplified mining value chain of a flow sheet where you see that we have for each step in the flow sheet already technologies, but we have identified what new technologies we will use in order to help the miners to be more productive and more sustainable. I've talked already about the wear part, but I will talk also about the <coughs> IPCC, the input crushing and conveying. I will talk about the water, the tailings, and I will also talk about ROL, the rapid oxidative leaching. We're working on a lot of these things. Some of these uh, technologies have already been launched in the market. Some of them are still at the very early stage of the development. But the pipeline of developments will make sure that over time, we can introduce them to the industry depending on the demand and the hunger of what we see from our customers. Talking about water, and as you know, this is becoming an increasing challenge to the mining industry. We have uh, talked about this already uh, at the last Capital Market Day in 2017 that we see opportunities in water. Of course, the unfortunate event, like for example, the Dam failure in uh, Brumadinho in Brazil has now really put the focus on this and say, look, the mining companies really has to do something about this. And we have been one of the four front runners on this, and, and uh, we are certainly in touch with all the big mining companies, and there's a lot of discussion now how they can address this issue. The current technology allows the recycling of roughly 70% of the water through base sickness and, and uh, all these kind of things, but still 30%, sorry, 30 of, the, of the water will be uh, in the material. The next big step what the industry is looking for is uh, a dewatering technology that will help to reduce the retaining water to 15%. With 15%, the material is strong enough that you can handle it, that you can stack it, and yet you don't need a tailings a wet tailings facility and the wet tailings dam uh, at all. So this is the big breakthrough. It is available for smaller capacities. What we are working on is really to make this technology available for large-scale capacities. I'm talking around 200,000 tons per day. And we need to do this in a, of course, economical, feasible way. The uh, International Council for Mining and Metals, led by some of the biggest Investors like the Pension Fund of the Church of England and so on, they're all now working on this. They have invited suppliers like us 
to work with the industry to find a solution. So there's probably a lot of potential here. Of course, this is the short-term solution. Uh, the long-term solution would be, okay, how can we eliminate water and the mining uh, completely? And we believe also here, because of our knowledge from the cement industry, we have a good position because cement is a dry process. All the grinding and so on is already dry, and we have certainly knowledge how we can introduce this into the mining industry, and we have already interesting discussions around this with some of the major mining companies. We talked a lot about the echo tales, and I still get questions. Where are you with this development? We've made big steps. As you remember, we have, together with Gold Corp, now Newmont started this roughly three years ago, where they exactly said, look, we need a solution, a large-scale solution for dewatering. And we have developed this filtration technology. And um, what you see in the uh, picture here is one of these five-by-three filter blades. You need about 70 to 100 of these blades in a filter. And to just give you an idea of the dimension, what we are talking here. So it's huge investments, but these investments will be necessary to collect and dewater and avoid wet tailing stamps completely. So we have uh, developed this, and we are the first article test has been all very, very successful. We have also increased the filter media wear life to more than six months and so on. So good progress has been done there. At the same time, of course, we are working with a lot of the suppliers do with other solutions. And of course, we have also with the big mining company in Brazil entered into an agreement how we can work with them. And they've uh, just released the first order for 30 filter units that they will apply together with us uh, in the tailings management in their operations in Brazil. So a lot of good things happened. And unfortunately, these events will, like Brumadinho, will develop and will accelerate the, implica uh, the application of this technology. The ROL, the rapid oxidative leaching, is also something I talked uh, about two years ago, and you probably wonder where you are with this. We have tested the process in, our, in a demo plant in our lab in uh, Salt Lake City with very good results. Based on that, we have made an agreement with a Peruvian miner, copper miner, and we've built a demo plant, and we're running the demo plant at the moment, also with very good results. So the next step will be after the completion of this demo plant that we build a full-size plant. What we've also shown is that, of course, um, this process is very uh, good for handling of uh, what we call dirty ores, uh, sulfides, or ores that have a high arsenic content. The arsenic content is a problem because, uh, as I said, it's also a lot of the copper concentrates goes into the smelting, and if you have to get the arsenic in, in your copper concentrate, of course, there's a, the risk of uh, polluting the atmosphere through this. So it's not only handling of difficult ores, it will also help to address the, the question around arsenic and pollution and so on. In addition to this, we have uh, started, of course, tests in other minerals, and we see very good results in uh, refractory gold, it's about 50% of the world known gold deposits are refractory gold. If we can apply this, of course, that will also be a big breakthrough. The idea is, of course, that uh, this process, compared to other known processes like autoclaves and things like that, that this works with atmospheric pressure, with relatively low temperature, and with a very low uh, reaction time. So it's very economical compared to existing technologies like autoclaves. 
And then uh, something about CO2 and dust emission. What I show here is a picture about uh, a unit uh, that is uh, operating in a big iron ore mine in Brazil. They have uh, four of these units. Each of these units is producing more than 10,000 tons per hour. So this is the biggest iron ore mine, and it's completely truckless. The normal uh, operation, as you know, in surface mines is trucks and shovels. And it's not unusual that big trucks, uh, that big mines use three to 400 trucks. This is eliminating the trucks completely. And the beauty is it's driven with renewable energy. There is no diesel. It requires uh, only a few uh, operators because it's all remote controlled and automated. And of course, it does not generate a lot of, of dust and so on. This is not completely new technology. Uh, and it's not applicable to all applications. If you have a very complicated ore deposit, it's very difficult to, to operate. But if we are just, uh, let's say, addressing 10 to 20% of the existing surface mines which could use this technology, this would be, a, of course, a, a big breakthrough and uh, create a lot of opportunities because you could replace uh, hundreds and thousands of diesel-driven trucks every year. And there's a lot of interest. I'm just coming from a meeting with a Peruvian miner that runs at the moment a, a big mine at a high elevation with 400 trucks, they will go to three of these systems and they will eliminate the trucks to a large extent. Now I've used, uh, I've shown you how we will fix the, uh, the challenges, what we have, but also what new opportunities uh, we see in the market. What is the market growth in mining? We estimated 3 to 4% conservatively over the average over the cycle per year. And our ambition is certainly to go at least at the same speed with our internal initiatives on top of this growth. So this should be, over the cycle, you should, you should see a, a minimum of uh, 6 to 8%. And the introduction of the new technologies, the new services, um, and of course the growth of the market will certainly give us the opportunity to achieve this growth rate. At the same time, we, have, uh, we are also working on improving our mix, as I said, with more stable aftermarket business, with improving our margin, especially in the capital business, and of course uh, with the rapid growth, at the same time keeping our costs relatively stable, we will also get the operating leverage. So by implementing the strategy, where I've shown you certain parts of it, there's of course only one part as other initiatives I mentioned before, like standardization, modularization, all kind of initiatives are ongoing. I've just shown you a few selected parts of the strategy. But when we implement the strategy, we will not only create a more profitable, sustainable, and stable business, we will also generate a lot of additional shareholder value. Thank you very much. Questions? Yes? Yeah, Lars Topham from, yep. from Carnegie. So, so Manfred, copper is made either from, from oxide or, or sulfide, or can you comment on how you see the output mix change between the two types and maybe elaborate a bit on, on how that affects your business? Thanks. Yeah, thank you very much, Lars, for the question. A very good question. As you know, most uh, copper deposits, you have the easy handling or easier processing oxide ore at the top, and when you go deeper, you go more and more into sulfides. About 50% of the well-known copper resources are sulfides, uh, but they are very difficult to handle. If we are able to 
with the ROL create a, a process that it makes it economically feasible to manage these ores, there's huge opportunities. We believe that the certain we will have an entrance where mines, we certain mines are already transferring from oxide to sulfide. They will test it first, and of course, when once this is tested and accepted in the industry, then there is a lot more opportunities. So we believe that uh, this can certainly generate a few billion uh, TKs of business opportunities for us uh, because the opportunities are great. And as I said, it's not only copper, it's of course gold and others. But I'm also thinking a flotation plant, does that represent better business for you than leaching? Um, Depends, of course. Uh, I mean, it's not the same ore that you use for a flotation or for a leaching process. But what I also see is a lot of people that have high pollution and high arsenic, they will add this to their flotation plant. They say, okay, we, we generate the, the concentrate with, a, let's say, 30% of copper, and then we go through the ROL process to take uh, um, the pollution and everything out. And then we have a very clean uh, copper uh, and... Uh, they will avoid all the penalties. If you now sell copper concentrate with high arsenic, you pay a very high penalty and you get a very low price. So there's a lot of different dynamics that are driving this. And this is particular of interest for this Peruvian mine where we are currently working. They say, look, just with the penalties that we avoid uh, by not having this arsenic in the copper, we are already paying for the plant. Yes, please. That's Arsene from Credit Suisse. Um, just on the project pipeline in copper, looking at slide four at your chart, it seems like in the next five to seven years, the size of possible and uh, pro probable pipeline, it looks smaller than the projects committed in the next two, 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 two or three years. Maybe you can give us a quick comment on how you see the project pipeline in the next couple of years. Um, these charts are illustrative only, and don't please don't scale the parse what you see there. I mean... Uh, the project pipeline, we have quite a strong pipeline. The only risk what we have here is the timing on this. We have a few very large projects where we don't, are not quite sure when they will be triggered. And so it's very difficult to give you exactly which quarter it is. But we are seeing a, a good pipeline of projects. Some of them are larger brownfields. Some of them are uh, greenfield projects. Uh, and uh, so we are quite confident with our order backlog because uh, uh, or with our pipeline and we, with the information what we see through our CRM systems, actually the pipeline is growing. It is really the lack of decision that is currently holding back our order intake a bit. I guess rephrasing a bit, after two years of very strong, um, of very strong project approvals, do you think the pipeline is now bigger, of similar size than in the last two years or actually is a bit smaller? We have a few opportunities which are in excess of a billion in order intake. I cannot say you exactly when they will happen, but we've worked on these opportunities since two or three years. So I'm saying it's still a very strong pipeline. I'm just not sure when they will happen, but it has piled up. This lack of decision by our customers saying, well, it's uncertain. I'll give you an engineering order, but I don't release the equipment and so on. That is holding back a little bit the order intake, what you see, but it's not does not mean that our salespeople, our engineers are not busy. They're very busy. But it's not showing yet in the order intake. Thank you very much. Hi, it's Andy Wilson from JP Morgan. 
Um, I just wanted to ask, and it's probably a question for, for both mining and cement, but when we kind of think about these areas that you're targeting to kind of grow outside of, of the market, so why supports new technology service, how should I think about the need for investment in order to drive those areas? Because obviously we've seen previously you've kind of you've flagged additional spend in digitalization. You know, I wonder about how much R&D we might need um, or whether it's going to be sort of largely organic or through M&A. Just trying to think about if you're going to grow ahead of the market, how much of the capability is already in the group and how much of it is, you know, effectively is going to be incremental spend one way or another over the next uh, two to three years? This is primarily what I show here as organic growth. This is not including any bigger, of course, uh, M&A and so on. We have the technology in-house. Do I want to spend more money on R&T? I certainly want, we, as soon as we see the opportunities. But what also the concept what we have is that most of the new developments are done together with major mining companies, and they participate in this. This is the advantage, not only that we save money, but also their input is very valuable, and this will help us to speed up the acceptance of the technology in the industry. So a lot of what you see on the dewatering and, and on the ROL and so on, of course, there's commercial contracts behind it, and we are not carrying all the, de the development money. So this is not driven by any big extraordinary investments. Of course, uh, our R&D has been stable, and we are targeting a certain percentage of revenue, but this is not driven by any extraordinary investment. So when we think about the, the kind of associated margin development, we should be thinking about that you know, effectively incorporating the necessary cost. It's not going to be that down the road we, we kind of get a nasty shock as additional cost. It's like that's in that thinking. That's in there. Of course, all the development, what we do here, the costs are in there. There's not a, an extra cost. Perfect. Thank you. <coughs> thank you. Um, as I hope you have seen from my colleague's presentation, digital is an integral part of our business. It's part in both industries of what we're doing, as well as part of our internal activities that we're doing. Uh, I have the privilege to work with digital since early 2000, and I think one of the th things that I always advocate is to look at what is hype and what is reality. So I th thought I'd start off by showing what is reality. Here on my left-hand side, your right-hand side, sorry, is the blue box. This is an equipment that we connect to the kiln, the crusher, etc. out there. This use collects all the sensors, actuators in the machine to make it operate at, at the best level. So you can uh, operate it from here, and then it also have this process optimizations to make sure it's run optimal. And that's all great, and we have hundreds out of out there, and there are more of them from our competition. What we now have introduced this year is this field agent. The field agent has a lot of ports, so you can connect to more or less any equipment. So what's the beauty of this? Well, the, the beauty of this is that now we can take the data from the machine, send it to the cloud, and then visualize it and use the data in many different ways. This is not hype, this is reality, and this is what we're doing. How we're using this data is in different ways. We're using it internally, but also for the customer. They can use it on many devices. One is it to use it on the mobile devices. We have applications to show uh, the, on the, the performance of the equipment. They get alarm notification, etc. That is possible today, and that provides huge value for the customers already today. Yeah, for those on, on the webcast, this is what it looks like. 
and it allows us to make to access 130 years of installed base. 130 years ago, maybe we didn't have that many sensors and actuators, but in principle, we can connect more or less any asset that we have out there, providing us and the customer huge value. And then we have applications, various applications, where the customer can see the KPIs of their various equipment, uh, getting the notifications, etc. This is a starting point, and this is possible already today. There's other things that's also possible today. In my message today, what I'm trying to deliver is that I want to highlight that process optimization and asset health are key areas for productivity and sustainability that is enabled and accelerated through digitalization. The second part I want to cover is that we as a premium provider are in a very good position to leverage the, the digital technologies to be a premium provider also in the service segment. We have a good opportunity to capturing a large portion of the service business. And lastly, I want to cover how we are doing and driving innovation in the digital space. Before going into this, the focus today is very much on our offerings. That's what's showed by Manfred, that's what's showed by Jan. But in our digital journey, we have three focus areas. Besides the offering uh, and solutions, we're also focusing a lot on the customer experience. How can we simplify the relationship between us and the customer, make it more easy for them to interact with us. Manfred mentioned e-commerce. We're having these tools to uh, simplify um, service process with us. We are accessing information through the cloud of manuals, etc. supply chain integration. Business operations, large share that we're working with bots. We're making improve. We are using about 100 bots in operations today, and that's an important part of it. Supply chain integration is another important part of our digital journey and also working with digital twins in our engineering department for process development and product development. And of course, this builds on the foundation of working with a lot of data and also our people are key assets here, building on new capabilities and training our people. So if we're looking at it on a strategic level, there are really three levels we're looking on the product. First, we have this machine that is connected. Also in the future, a lot of machines will not be connected to the cloud, and we need to make sure that they're optimal performing also on site. That's key. But by connecting them to the cloud, what is the focus? The focus is asset health, predictive maintenance, prescriptive maintenance. That, those are key drivers in the industry today. And the third part of this is also the customer intimacy. We are getting constant feedback from the customer how our equipment is performing and how we can improve it. The second part is then the process flow sheet. It's still very important, both in cement and mining, to optimize critical processes. We have a tool called Advanced Process uh, PXP, Advanced Process Control System. We had it for quite some years. This is highly relevant also moving forward. What we're doing with the technology we've used in the past, we are enhancing it with new technologies such as machine learning, deep learning, etc. But to be clear, our, the old technology is not bad. In a similar way as automotive industry, when they're working with autonomous cars, applying AI on some part of it, but they're using a large portion of old statistical method. This is also happening in our industry. The third part of this is on the plant level. In the future, what we see is this fully autonomous mine, fully operated with remote operations, 
and uh, minimal environmental footprint. This is all where we're heading today. Uh, and there is already uh, remotely operated plants has been happening over the last 10 years, but it's not deployed to a large extent yet. Technology-wise, we are there, but it takes time to move to that situation. What plants are focusing on a lot today is around maintenance, plant maintenance, to seemingly less use data uh, to optimize the uptime of the equipment and the plant. Coming back to what we are offering, and if I keep you on the slide a little bit, is there are four components. It's the machines, it's the plants, it's the cloud, and it's the digital services. Machines, what we're offering on the machines is those control system, which we can do on single machine, multiple machine, which is on the plant level. They need to run optimal with or without a connection to the cloud. That's key moving forward. Uh, on a plant level, we have plant control system that we are continuing developing, and also this process optimization that we're using for all critical processes in the plant. Then the same machine, using the field agent or a similar device, we're able to take this information out to the cloud and start analyzing the data, work with that data. The feedback and the benefit for the customer is that we give them real-time KPIs on the go on the performance of various equipment, on various processes. Of course, we're also then able to remotely support them with troubleshooting, with optimization, with fine-tuning. That's a huge value for the customer. And we can do that because we have the process knowledge and technical knowledge. When we look a bit further, we have to realize that we are not the center of the universe but a plant and mine is integrating upstream and downstream. So as we mature as industry, uh, the data that we produce in the mine or from our system is used elsewhere. So we're integrating with customers, with suppliers, with the stock market to know that we're producing at the, the highest price and also the availability from supply chain or to the government where we are uh, reporting on emissions, etc. But equally important, if for those of you who are Apple users and using an iPhone, Apple require their supplier to be able to trace back uh, the, the, how cobalt has been produced. So it is being produced in a sustainable way. This they're doing with blockchain today, and blockchain is one of many technologies. What I'm trying to highlight is that we are part of a bigger ecosystem. Also other industry, the car industry, want to be able to trace back the quality of product of goods. Blockchain is one of many technologies. Why is that important for us now? Well, we build the foundation now to be part of a bigger ecosystem and also in the future. Hence, platform choice is a critical choice for us and others that we, open with, uh, that we operate with open APIs, etc. This slide you might have seen Mining and cement as industries are late adopters when it comes to digital. The focus is that it's not really being disrupted today. There is a lot of focus on cost and operational activities. Our industry, like the other industry, will move to the stage two and stage, stage three, but it will take uh, a period of time of getting there. For us, that's a great benefit. We can capitalize and use uh, technology innovations being used in other industries. 
On this slide, what I want to highlight is not so much the astonishing number that McKinsey predicts of being economical impact from operations management and equipment maintenance. What I want to highlight with this slide is a lot of talk around equipment maintenance as a big driver for miners. But actually, the real value for, for, for miners and also cement producers is around operations management. And one important part of operations management is around process improvements in the plants. And that's where we have an offer to, uh, to provide. What is this then doing to the miners? Well, they expect a higher yield, uh, increased availability, and not least this cost reduction. You have seen this before. As an O&M, you might think this is scary. And it is, like Thomas say, it's partly cannibalization. But as for a premium provider, we actually see this as a huge huge advantages. Yes, capex will go down for miners. So is uh, the service spend, both in mining and cement. But the beauty is with this process optimization being key and smartness of equipment being key, is the players with a large portion of the flow sheet is in a very good position of also capturing a larger part moving forward. The one we believe will have a harder time is single equipment manufacturer of equipment. Also on top of this, we're adding service, process optimization, benchmarking, condition monitoring, predictive maintenance, giving uh, additional revenue. But what I find particularly interesting is now when our equipment is connected, we have all the information about the, how the customer is uh, producing. We can provide them very precise uptime of the equipment to keep the highest uptime, to do condition monitoring. We know what spare part they need when and the where parts. This helps us and the customer to increase the uptime. We can provide service contract. So we are in a very good position to capture a larger part of our wallet share. And as Lars shared, it also helps us with our networking capital to reducing our inventory, to have in stock what is required. And I think what is also important to show is that I've seen this in other industry. Our industry is behaving very much the similar. A lot of focus up to the point of sales has been the norm. And I think we see that still in the industry somewhat. What we have started a few years ago is once we connect the equipment, that is turnaround. Digitalization is turning. The starting point is when we connect the equipment. Then that is the point when the customer wants to interact with us. They expect us to interact with them. They expect us to provide 24-7 support. And that's an advantage for us. Knowing our processes and products, etc., we can give them this. We have this troubleshooting 24-7 since 10 years. We're building on the same processes. We're helping the customer to find, adjust their equipment to have the highest possible uptime. And we are doing that because we know the products better than anyone else. Which brings me to, I think, when we go to plants today and look and trying to help customers, we don't start with a digital approach. Although I love digital, we, you need to look at the business problem first. So we first look and is there anything on the processes? And very frequently we start with process improvements and operational improvements before we add the digital, digital capabilities on top of this. Digital capabilities such as PXP, such as uh, condition monitoring. But it's crucial, and this is what makes us unique. We have the competence both in products, services, and processes. And when we combine that with our data scientists, 
That's what we have a golden opportunity. That is really hard for new entrants to copy. To give you some examples of what we're doing here, uh, if you had the chance to look at the mixed row flotation, it's a very exciting area. I hope you go and look there later if you haven't seen it. Uh, smart flotation is where we combine our mechanical knowledge together with our technical knowledge. So what we have done here is that we have adjusted and changed some valves. We added sensors, we added actuators, we added our PXP, we added connectivity and condition monitoring. By doing this, we, are better, we can act more accurately measure the slurry and we can better control the speed of the slurry. Nothing magic. And also from a service perspective, we're able to measure the wear of, of the equipment. This gives the customer a recovery rate of up to three percentage points, which is in a, for a gold producers equal 20 million of increase in revenue on a yearly basis. From a sustainability, it's less water usage and also, of course, the reagents consumption with less than uh, reduced with 25% is a significant impact. For us, this hits the productivity, sustainability, and service part of our business very well. The next example, which I think is genius, uh, is a filter. Think about it as your uh, vacuum cleaner filter back home. In a cement plant, it's very dusty environment. And normally how they are cleaned is they're using constant pressure through these filters to clean them. But the, dust, the environment is changing, so sometimes it's more dusty than others. We came up with this solution where we're able to retrofit install base and remotely, or we're actually on, on plant, adjusting the speed of the flow. So depending on how dusty it is in the filter, we adjust the pressure. This reduces the energy, it's a less use of energy and it's extending the bag life with 25%. And you might say, well, you're increasing the life with 25%, you will sell less filter. Yes, maybe so. But what we have done is we have taken a commoditized product, a simple filter, and made it to a smart product. And we're bundling it with a service contract. So we're staying in close contract with the customer all along. So we know when it's to fail so we can replace them. Peace of mind for them and, and getting us closer to the customer. I think in mining and cement, there is many similar equipment that we have now an opportunity to not fight on the commodity side, but to make them smartified and, and help the customer growing the business. When we look at this, it's important right now is for us to grow the number of connections. We have, over the last year, connected about 750 assets with equipment like this. It's not the connectivity to the data itself that's the exciting part. It's what we're doing with it. And that's still a journey where we're working with our data scientists and process to provide better and more accurate condition monitoring and predictive maintenance. And that's a journey that will be ongoing for many years. Uh, also, what I mentioned with this, that we have 200 plants remotely monitored and supported with more equipment connected, we can utilize those centers even more and provide greater value to the customer. And the outlook over the next three years is, is that all new equipment that's going out now is connected with a software field agent or hardware field agent. 
as well as we're looking to capture our install base. We have a huge install base out there today, have been in business for so long, and there is already enough of sensors on our equipment that we can make value to the customer. So that's the uh, main drive over the next three years. There was one more thing I wanted to touch on, and that was on our innovation. We are continuing with our R&D innovation, but to also take more opportunities in digital, we're putting in some additional components. If you remember the slide where I showed you cement and mining as industries are late on the digital ad adoption rate, this is great for us. We are partnering with best-in-class technology companies that has worked higher up in the value chain, that has worked with automotive, that have worked with the airline industries, etc. We can use those technologies also in the mining and, mining and cement industry. For instance, that's why we've chosen to partner with Microsoft. They're working in other industry. We can use the same technology in our industry. We're also working with other tech companies that helps us drive this. A second important area is around our own talents. We have a lot of good talents in our company, both process domain knowledge as well as technical knowledge. We are setting up a way where we quicker capitalize on that business to work them to validate business idea and put that into business solutions. And the third area to grow here is to, uh, similar to what we're doing in mining and cement, looking for investments in new technologies that will have an impact on cement and mining also in the future. With those activities that we have on the product portfolio today and what we are developing in the future in this setup, uh, makes it in a very good uh, position to remain a productivity leader also in the future. With that, thank you very much. And any question now or in the later session? Dion? Good afternoon. Um, my name is Dion de Kock, and I'm responsible for Sub-Saharan Africa and Middle East. And um, I have to give you a regional perspective. So part of my presentation today would be to talk about regions in, in general. We have seven of them. But then really to focus in on Sub-Saharan Africa and Middle East to give you some examples of how all things come together that my colleagues have spoken about earlier today because I think, um, or I know, that everything that we do in the end is focused towards our customer. Um, it's uh, in preparation for this presentation, um, I realized that it's a huge responsibility and it's my first capital markets day. But then I realized it should actually be an easy job because if you and your colleagues know what you're doing and you understand what your role is in the new way of working and you believe in it, then it's easy to present it. And I assure you that we believe in what we do and in the new way of working. So I want to remind you a little bit what we went through in the regions. Um, in each of the seven regions, uh, there was a transformation from moving from four industries into two industries, um, one region and one digital approach. And, and what did that mean? I wanted to remind you a little bit about the before picture. As uh, Lars spoken about, there was four P&Ls, four business divisions, and in any multinational you have a matrix organization. But this was a very complex matrix organization. And the fact of the matter is because of the four business divisions, it was very difficult for us um, to leverage our critical mass and our resources 
And it was difficult for us to offer the full life cycle offering, to offer full flow sheet uh, solutions, and to really um, also exploit our critical mass. Um, but I think the most difficult part of the organization for us in the front line was the fact that these four divisions, we had our own go-to-market plan. So that means different sales and distribution channels, some direct, some indirect. It meant that there was a different demarcation of the regions for these various uh, sales channels. Um, and it was really difficult then to have a uniform and coordinated approach to your customer. So that was the reason that we changed the organization to serve our customers better and to have a better um, offering on the table in terms of what F.L. Smith has to offer in its entirety. Um, and that little error there in the middle for us meant a lot of things. First of all, it was to move from four divisions to two industries and one region. One region that represents F.L. Smith in its entirety. Um, and if you look at that arrows there to go to the new way of working, it meant that we had to strip out all sales resources or order to delivery people and combine that into one unified sales force. We had to strip out and optimize all of the shared services in HR, finance, um, safety, health, and so forth, as well as procurement, to make that a shared resource throughout the region. We had to create and combine the expertise into teams, especially in engineering and product line management, that we could support our new sales and service network. Because the last thing you want to do is be in front of the customer, have sales and service people, but they're not supported by expertise in the region or globally by industry. Um, and what we also had to do was to relinquish our responsibility in terms of project management and engineering to the industry so that we could free up scarce resources and that we can focus on what we do well, which is to serve the customers and to sell. Um, and of course, in any change management, there was some reluctance to relinquish that responsibility to industries because you were used to, in the old way of working, to be self-sufficient, to be in an isolated environment where you had to cater for your own needs. Today, with a new way of working, we don't have to ask for help. We can demand that help from industries in terms of expertise, project management, and engineering. Um, and... Um, Last but not least, um, what we had to do here um, was also to take ownership of our new structure. And um, it was quite easy for the people to do that because that's what we wanted in the region. So with a new way of working, um, Lars also talked a little bit about the new PNL, And I can assure you that there's no, no way to hide, no place to hide for a region president or for the salespeople in the organization because we have full accountability for the business result and the, uh, and, and, and the business in its entirety. The industry presidents have the responsibility for the P&L uh, to EBITDA level, so they look at us. So there's that matrix organization that makes sure that there's no place to hide. And there's also the responsibility of digital. And then we have on top of that, I have my boss, Thomas Schultz, and Lars on my back about serving the customers well and really growing the business. So is that a negative thing for a person in the front line to have no place to hide? Definitely not. It's the opposite. We have full ownership and accountability, and that's highly motivating for the sales force and the service force in the front line. Um, and it's one thing to have accountability and responsibility, but I can assure you that we are fully supported, empowered, and enabled to serve and to sell and to have that close customer relationship. So this is the seven regions. Um, 
And to you it may just look like a map. But for the region presidents and the regional perspective, this is quite significant. The regional demarcation is a critical success factor for customer intimacy. Because we own that region. We own the customers. We own that relationship. And we feel proud of that. So we really have, when we look at this, I have Carsten here, the region president for um, uh, North Europe, Ach, Europe, Russia, North Af Africa. And he would agree with me that this demarcation here, which is now applicable to FL Smith in its entirety for all the products that we offer and all the customers in our region. That gives us really a good playing field. We're playing the sales and service game, and we want to win that. And in that playing field, we now know what's happening in our own backyard in all aspects. Um, we always talk in our region about working together and working as a team. And um, you would agree with me that working together is a waste of time. Because when you work together, you sometimes have too many resources in one area or in one function, and in some areas too little. It's ineffective, it's a waste of time, and therefore we had some white spots. White spots in the way we service the customers and white spots in terms of what we had to offer. So it's much better to work as a team where you rely on your teammates in the other seven regions, on your teammates in the industry, your teammates in, in digitalization, and in the group to do what they're supposed to do so that we can sell and service. Um, also, in this uh, demarcation, it gives us the full P&L responsibility. Like I said, it gives us the opportunity to offer now full life cycle support, the full entire flow sheet offering, and to give the guarantee and to back our customers up. So before I move on to the next slide, I want to talk a little bit about Region 4, Sub-Saharan Africa and Middle East. It's quite a unique region. Um, and... Is that my time? <laughs> I was thinking it's the opposite way around. So um, in this region, Sub-Saharan Africa and Middle East, it's, it's a big region. It's 43 countries. And this region is made up of a diverse set of um, uh, countries. It's different languages, different cultures, and so forth. It's huge. You can fit the whole of USA, China, and France, and Germany into Africa and Middle East. You don't realize that but it's really huge. And therefore, the new way of working is the right way of working because we can be close to our customers to have local responsiveness and backed up by the global organization. The other thing about the region, we have the typical geopolitical trends like war, sanctions, um, political unrest, nationalism, indigenization laws, crime and corruption, and so forth. But this is the end we dealt with in the region, and it's not unique to our region. Um, I've been reminded in preparation for this uh, presentation that I shouldn't tell a sob story to you about the geopolitical situation in our country. But the new way of working allows us to address that issue and to turn that adversity into opportunity. Travel is a big issue for us in our region because it's vast. Travel security is issued. You need visas, work permits. Um, just to go to a customer visit for me in the DRC takes me three days for a two-hour meeting. Um, and that's an, yet another reason to be closer to your customer, to have localization, to appoint people where we operate, where we have the installed base. Before, we couldn't do that because we didn't have the critical mass. Uh, the installed base was serviced by some more people. So we, we um, set up ourselves up to be closer to the customer. This is our region. It's 800 employees. We've got three manufacturing plants, and more of 60% of the people are customer-facing people. 
in mining, we've got 395 operational mines, and we produce about or process about 1 billion ton of um, um, uh, minerals. And the interesting thing there for mining is that um, in our region, we produce about 75% of the global production of platinum. Um, that poses a huge opportunity for us. And then also you will see gold is quite prominent in our region. And with gold price at the 1,500 ton per fine ounce, it's quite um, an attractive market to be in. So we, of our installed base, our share of wallet, the way we've calculated, we've got about 14%. So there's exciting room for growth there. On cement, the message is that there's overcapacity. Um, and uh, while mining is a global um, uh, trend, uh, cement is very localized. So while we have overcapacity in our region, there is pockets, like Jan has shown in his presentation, that um, has capacity constraints where they will invest in capacity, and that's predominantly in West Africa and East Africa. So exciting um, Prospects for us, still huge opportunity to grow, predominantly in the aftermarket, and we're well positioned to do that. So what was the immediate impact of the new way of working? First of all, you had to get buy-in and commitment from the team and from the region presidents. And that was easy. That was immediate. And the reason for that was that we knew that we had to do that to serve the clients better. The, same, the, the next one was that we really had to get buy-in from the team members. So these are the things that we did. Um, the most uh, uh, important one was that we really focused on the four-tier uh, structure to serve our customers, where we had head office sales, account sales, mining site sales, field service, and owning people to really focus on serving the customers well. Um, we've gone in many of the areas because of our critical mass to direct sales channels uh, to be closer to the customer and to take it over from dealers and distributors. Um, We've doubled the size of our supercenter, and at the moment, I can say that our customer-facing people have, have increased significantly. We've talked about the white spots. Um, one of that uh, was in Ghana, and the reason we have particularly mentioned Ghana is it's in West Africa. It's well-known for gold, but it's also a big uh, cement-producing area. When we talk about Ghana and West Africa, we've established our office there in 2018, and that's when we um, actually changed it from uh, an existing trading entity to a full trading entity that you can do manufacturing, sales, and also um, uh, repair work. Um, I want to mention that while the establishment date is there in 2018, already in 2017, before the new way of working, our colleagues in, 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 in Europe and in States and in South Africa service Ghana, and we realized the need that we have to have closer collaboration. So the branch was established, subsidiary established in 2017, and then changed into a full trading entity in 2018. And we employ about 15 people there. It's all Ghanaians. The general manager is a Ghanaian, and we pride ourselves in employing local people because they're highly competent, they are local, and it addresses all of the issues that we've talked about um, uh, that we have challenges in our area. You have to think about Ghana and the ECOWAS countries, which is the economic West African states as a whole. Um, we have our head office in Accra, but we also have an office in Nigeria to look after the cement business, and we will soon have a super center, a small super center in Tarqua, closer to the customer to serve our installed base. So there's huge opportunity for growth in Ghana. And... Um, uh, since we've established ourselves in 2018, which was the full first, uh, full, uh, first full year of operations, we've grown the business 60%, 60 
That's all aftermarket business. And for the budget of the guidance for next year, or target for next year, we believe that we'll grow it with another 40%. The potential for us in Ghana is to have continued rapid growth um, of that magnitude for the next three to four years. And it's driven by the fact that there's high exploration in gold. Gold opportunities is huge there. There's five top-tier mining companies that operate in that area, and they're expanding um, in production and output and sweating their assets, and we are positioned there to serve them. Um, like I say, we shouldn't confuse um, uh, Ghana and West Africa only with mining. There's also huge uh, cement activity. We produce about 80 million tons per annum of um, cement there, and the opportunity for us there is very big because we had the other day a symposium in Lagos where we had uh, 32 people attending that symposium and we're already seeing the RFQs for uh, cement coming in. At the moment, um, we signed an agreement there to service 16 kilns. Of that 16 kilns, only two is our own, which means we're attacking the competitive uh, market and the competitor installed base. And because we are in-country, because we have the expertise and we have quite a unique value proposition, we got those agreements. Um, what's also important there is that um, there's laws and regulations in Ghana. I, I talked about it a little bit about the indigenization laws, is that you have to be in-country in and therefore our setup serves that purpose well. We have to accelerate our investment in Ghana, and we've approved that. We'll go ahead to be closer to the customer and exploit this wonderful market, both for mining and cement. The next um, white spot that we had was in Saudi, and the white spot here was really for mining, not so much for cement. Um, in Saudi, from an F.L. Smith perspective, we look at the business and we think about um, uh, Saudi as cement revenue. And the reason for that was that we didn't leverage our resources and expertise to exploit the market with mining. Um, in um, Saudi, we've established our aid office in 2018. The first thing we did in quarter three last year after we announced the new way of working was that all of the colleagues from three different continents that played in Saudi met with each other and realized soon that there's enough installed base, critical mass, and opportunities to establish a branch, which we did. Since then, we've appointed a general manager, Abdullah. He's a, local, he's a Saudi national, and all 13 people that we've appointed in the past year for mining are all Arab-speaking nationals to serve the purpose locally. Um, uh, we have about 50 people working there. 33 of them is in the O&M plant for cement. Um, on the right-hand side is just a map of the mine installations and the cement installations. In Saudi, we have a very, very good relationship with our customers, um, especially on the mining side. The reason I'm showing you this picture, we recently signed an agreement. Like Janis mentioned, our focus is not so much on O&M anymore, on the O part. Where we can, we do not want to operate plants, but we certainly want to provide them the expertise to, um, to exploit the, cap uh, the service markets. And the, in this plant management contract with Yanwa, we've got 33 people. And when we signed this agreement, we realized that we have a shortage of staff and skilled resources. And for that reason, we agreed with Yanbo that we have a joint venture for a training academy. And the purpose of that training academy is to train people that can work in our plants, that can serve the purposes of our needs in the cement industry, but also in the greater Gulf cooperation of countries. So what does that do for us? It really lifts our image as a productivity provider um, and it really builds ambassadors in that training course for people that will be familiar with our products and that will use it in future. 
Um, and to do that, you have to have that customer intimacy. So Saudi, the message that I have here, it's an opportunity for massive growth. And we are there. As F.L. Smith, we had the courage of our conviction to establish the branch, to appoint people, and to be local. And we will strengthen that position. Um, since we've established our branch the first half of this year, um, if we take the full year and we extrapolate it, we will double the business um, in 2019. And next year, we see that we will have about a 50% year-on-year growth. All of this coming from the aftermarket. And while we position ourselves well for the aftermarket, there's huge opportunity in Saudi also for us for upgrades and retrofits in the cement side and greenfield projects for mining. Vision 2030 for Saudi is that they will invest 400 billion rand to develop mining as the third pillar of their economy. The other day they announced they've invested 3.8 billion dollars just to make it easier for companies to access geological data and mining data and to remove red tape so that it's easier to do business. It's totally different than what it was two, two years ago, and it's much, much more open for business. Um, if you look at their ambition, they want to triple the gold production. They want to add another 3 million tons per annum of phosphate. To do that, they need people like um, F.L. Smith, and we are there. On the cement side, you know, we are targeting, again, the competitor installed base, and the reason for that is simply that we can offer aftermarket. There's 46 kiln lines in Saudi. Only three of that is ours, but we service 75% of them. At the moment, a big opportunity for us in Saudi for cement, where we're growing fast in the aftermarket, is, is that we're converting gray lines into white lines in the cement. And we also have opportunities where the local government will soon stop the um, subsidies and, uh, and so forth on um, the heavy fuel oil as a, 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 and they will then put a heavy opportunity on us that we can go to Petcoke or to coal. And in that instance, there will be coal mill business for us. As opposed to the global environment, all the cement players in Saudi are big local world-class players like Yanbo Cement and Kwasim Cement. So there, the message is clear. There's big opportunity for first-mover gains. We are in there. We're going to strengthen that. We're going to focus on the aftermarket. We've seen tremendous growth there, and we will position ourselves extremely well when the greenfield projects comes in. Exciting opportunity for us in Saudi. So we talked a lot about digitalization. There's three examples of digitalization in the front line. Um, the one at the top is a bulk expert system where you do a train loadout system, and the loadout is automated, it's optimized, and you immediately impact the customer's bottom line in terms of efficiency, productivity, and output. Um, like I say, all digitalized, all automated, and all in the cloud, fully visible. The other project is um, the blue box that um, the Michael referred to on two occasions. Um, the plant on the right-hand side, I got permission from the customer this morning. It's AfriSAM. It's a leading supplier of cement. Um, in sub-Saharan Africa and Middle East, and they fitted, uh, they planted that field with the uh, blue boxes, and the aim is to roll it out to all of their plants. Um, the reflux classifier plant is a project at Sabani Stillwater where the plant is fully visible, controlled uh, remotely with that blue box and field agent so that you can do your diagnostics, your test, and your control of the plant remotely or on your mobile device. 
The reason I've put these projects is not so much, oh, on the right-hand corner there, of course, robotic labs with sampling preparation and analysis we can do. In that instance, you really position yourself in the value chain with a customer to impact his bottom line immediately. And it ticks all the boxes about digitalization, automation, and serving the customer. Except for the robotic labs, all of the other examples is not so much about the money. It's where you position yourself as a company and where you engage with the customer's organization. It's also that you are now in a position to relate intimately with a customer for him to give you the opportunity to access his plans, to monitor his plans, and then you can affect his outcome, his cost of per ton produce or, or, or his production capacity or increase. Um, and also to do this, I want to mention that when you talk digitalization, there's two things, two key success factors in the front line. The first one is that you have to know what you can offer and that you have to have a consistent strategy. And we're quite unique that we've appointed the chief digitalization officer. Digitalization is common theme throughout all of the presentations that we saw today. And what we do in the front line is not by chance uncoordinated and in isolation. It forms part of the overall global strategy. The second thing is that you have to have an intimate relationship with the customer. Customer intimacy is a key success factor for digitalization. And that intimacy you can only get with a new way of working where you're in the front line and close to the customers. The next project that I've put up there as an example uh, is a plant. We've put it under sustainability. And the reason for sustainability is simple. It ticks all the boxes in this instance. And why do I say that? In short, this plant is a mo modular plant. And what it does it recovers waste stream chrome. From the UG2 plants where they produce platinum, there's a waste stream. This will typically go to a tailings dam or a tailings dump. Environmental hazard and a big risk for the mines. No value. This plant is fully FL Smith. It's authentically FL Smith with 90% of that plant FL Smith except the green part. And Thomas asked me about the green photo. But... Um, this plant recovers waste chrome, and it turns that liability into an asset. Um, we've created about 45 jobs in that area, and um, the government is interested in what we do with the model because we not only tick the boxes of sustainability in the mining industry, we also tick the boxes of sustainability in job creation, and not by cannibalizing other jobs, creating new jobs. Um, it's a very exciting opportunity, and we will be in production at the end of this month. And in this instance, uh, we will have a high probability of turning a totally aftermarket-related uh, uh, environment into greenfield opportunities. This is the only capital project for Sabania Stillwater in 18 months. When Manfred and I went to the launch, they made it clear that that was the only capital investment that they've made in 18 months in South Africa, which is quite an achievement for F.L. Smith. So to close off, as a region, we are very well positioned as productivity provider number one. We've implemented the new way of working. We've staffed with due regard. We've covered the white spots and where we haven't done it, we are really pushing to cover that. We are really positioned well and we have no excuses not to offer the full offering, not to give the life cycle support and not to serve the customer. Um, you will see from the global result and also for our regional result that we've had an extremely strong growth in the aftermarket. 
Um, we've got great teams now in seven regions and two industries, and we have a strong fighting spirit to um, grow and to win the game that we play, and that's to sell and to service the customers. And if there's one thing that I can tell you today, while capital business is very erratic, up and down, aftermarket business is consistent. It's there. We have the installed base. We are mobilized towards that aftermarket. And while we've seen very positive growth and development in the aftermarket order intake, from a regional perspective where I'm sitting, and Carsten can echo that um, for um, Europe, North, uh, North Africa, and um, Russia, the best is yet to come in terms of aftermarket. The growth in aftermarket will follow, and next year you will see significant changes in that area. But it's one thing for me to talk. What does the customer say? Um, for us, the customer is king. For large cash is king. But um, are you still awake? <laughs> so no but anyway for, for us the customer is king and we've checked with the customer before and after and they have overwhelmingly supported the new way of working they believe in it as we do and I can say that today we are extremely um, confident that we can offer uh, what we promise we are confident that we can back up our promise as productivity provider and I have to say that um, I feel proud to say today that our vision of we drive success through sustainable productivity enhancement is not just words in the region. It's a reality and our mission every day. Thank you very much. Any questions? Thank you. That's Arsene from Credit Suisse. Uh, my question is around aftermarket demand in Central Africa. One of your UKP is a mining company, a mining equipment company, who reported yesterday they flagged some weakness in aftermarket demand in Central Africa because of uh, destocking uh, from customers because of a, uh, a tax, a new tax reform in Zambia, and then also some operational issues at their customers. Uh, how big is your exposure to that region, and do you see similar trends um, at the moment? Yeah. So in Central Africa, uh, this is an area where we don't have our own subsidiary. We go to that market through dealers and distributors. Um, but it's still a very important area for us because it's copper, it's growth, it's capital projects. So our exposure there um, at the moment is in terms of the customers that we service um, uh, and whether we travel to that regions, but we always make sure that we travel, and of course if they cannot pay us, but we manage our debt and um, our exposure with them well. But with regards to um, setups in that area, we go to the market with the indirect sales channel. Klaus Entler from Nordea. Um, we heard before that if this is one of them with the biggest or broadest product offering, how important is that for you when you're going out selling aftermarket services? I just want to make sure that I understand so how important it is to have that wide suite of offering. Yes. Yeah, I think it's really important for us, and it's a big enabler. Because if we are not able to go to the market with a full flow sheet and with the entire offering, we are being commoditized, and we become an equipment salesman. And if you commoditize selling single pieces of equipment, it ends down on two things, price and price. 
So with the entire offering that we have, we can offer a specific outcome, we can guarantee a specific outcome, we can give them a solution, and we can then also utilize and leverage that full offering to also offer better service and support afterwards because you have the critical mass. It's a huge enabler. It's, 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 it's very exciting for a salesman to have more in his repertoire to sell. And remember, they are all experts in a certain field that we offer. And in the areas where they're not, they are backed up by the regional product line managers or by the global product line managers. Okay, then the second question uh, coming to pricing. So when you're coming up with this sustainable sustainability product, do you see a improved pricing position uh, or is it actually just um, a normal evolution of, of product development? It's a difficult question. It depends. In certain areas, it's very, very easy to sell the value proposition because in the eye of the beholder, the customer, it's immediately perceived as additional value and he may have pressure from legislation or elsewhere, um, regulations that he adopts that and he's willing to pay a premium. But in many of the instances, we have to really fight hard to illustrate that you can charge a premium for that sustainability or digitalization. But what I want to say is if you're not going to be able to offer that in future, you will be disqualified from the table and you will not be sitting at the table. So it will take us some time uh, to create that value, to demonstrate that value and to prove that value but there will be people that will be falling by the wayside because they are not able to offer sustainability and digitalization. Thanks. Thank you. So, yeah, today we had actually um, quite a lot about what we see as a potential, how we do it, why we do it, and up to the level that we had uh, with Dion, a frontliner here, who takes that each day, how we exercise our business model, our value proposition into yeah, countries and areas where we were not that present before, which is for us a good potential. If we then look into it, it shows on the left side and on the right side, mining and cement and the potential. That is what you saw. And it's clear that in the markets where we operate is a big potential to do more business and in both industries, especially on the service side, which will make our business not only more profitable, it will make our business more stable and easier to read. The main driver for it is sustainability. And you will hear more of it, not only from us. I guarantee you in one to two years, it's everywhere. It hits you everywhere. We already have it in all the meetings, all the discussions. And we think with the competence, what we have, with the equipment, with the services, with the processes, what we have. I have to say the world needs that to make cement and mining more sustainable. This is not a project. This is not for the next two or three years or the next five years. This is forever from now on. This will not go away. This is part of life. The same as digital is. Because digital is the base. It's the enabler. Digital will provide the base, the environment to make that happen. We have today only as a 
general comment, significant more digitalization in our private life with the mobile phone, with the tabloids, on TV, no matter what you have, then we see it overall in the industries where we act in. The good news of that is huge potential to grow, huge potential to make more business, huge potential to get very close in a kind of a marriage with the customers all around the world, no matter where we are. If we then look into how we do it, important here is how we measure it, how we control it, how the KPIs are set up, how the benchmarking is. And we have a clear structure with two PL industries, seven regions with what we call the business result, which is sales and service driven. And we are able, since the reorg, to measure on a granularity level and to benchmark what we were not able before. Why? Exactly to avoid that we will have white spots in the future that we can offer everything what we have all around the world. This organization, to go closer to the customer, is not only based on our business model, where we offer process products and services. It is actually based on a getting more protectionistic and nationalistic world. Since the financial crisis, the amount of barriers what we have in the business is constantly increasing. The volatility in the single markets is constantly increasing, and we don't believe it will go away. Local presence, to speak the local language, to understand the local culture, is an essential part to have a good, successful business in both industries in the future. The potential, what we see here, is quite big. I can be quite open in it. If it comes to the mining part, we are very strong in the Americas, which sends a kind of a message how it looks in the other parts of the world. In cement, we are very strong in some countries, and in other countries, we have a big potential to go higher than we are today. With the structure what we have, we are able to focus on that. We are able to have single teams not looking into other areas, in their area what they got, and that is what they have to improve. And that is what they are measured on. Out of that, yes, it looks ambitious if it comes to the growth rates, but the 3 to 4% as a market growth is actually lower than we thought and communicated in the mid-end of 17 how mining will perform. We had to slow down on that growth part already at the end of last year, beginning of this year. But our ambition with that, what we put on top of it from our own, stays more or less the same. It is a growth cycle. Yes, it's very volatile. Yes, it's difficult to read out of our quarterly figures based on the what we call lumpy, bigger business, what we have quarter on quarter. But it is a growth market with a huge demand out, untapped huge demand, and the money is there. This will drive the profitability in mining to get to a mid-term 11 to 13% EBITDA in that business. In cement, the same. The market is slow, 
And it is slow actually since the end of the financial crisis. You see it with the suppliers only a few years later because the big projects were going very long over the time of the financial crisis. But there is still growth, not a lot, but there is still growth. And we can, with the way how we work and with the products what we have, with the services what we have, we are an essential part of the solution to be more sustainable. And the cement industry is actually more debated from a sustainability point of view in the media, with the governments, no matter where you go, than mining. Because that relatively small industry creates 8% of CO2. And we are an essential part actually to avoid, to make out of Germany a forest again, I think that's quite a long time ago than we had that, to compensate for all the CO2 if we take only 1% out, alone 1% out of the CO2 in cement is helping the world a lot, and we have the products for it. That gives us the belief and the knowledge that we will grow in that business, despite that we take bigger projects not as important as it was in F.H. Schmidt's history. The profitability improvement, what we saw this year, will go on midterm 7 to 8% EBITDA. Both industries together enable us to say that in the midterm we are on the 10% and in the long term 10 to 13%, which is then fulfilling our long term targets. And with the right growth, of course, the return on capital employed over 20%. This is for a company like us a journey, as it is maybe for other companies too. We come from an engineering background, global direct business, flying out of big centers to all the clients in the world into today a more localized, closer to the customer, leading provider of productivity improvement with sustainable technologies. And tomorrow, it is about to be Number one, in helping our industries, cement and mining, to be as sustainable as possible. And that is what drives us. That is what drives our customers to call us and to bring us in. And for that, we see in both industries quite a good business opportunity. And it will not only help cement and mining from a profitability point of view, it has to help both industries to get a better reputation. Because at the end of the day, if the reputation stays low, we will all have a problem in these industries to attract talents. And we live with people, people make the business. So out of that, I would like to invite my team to the stage for the Q&A. So, I, I got the microphone here, so I don't <laughs> have the power now. No, no, a, a question. I mean, when you present what you can do on, on productivity, it's all uh, very compelling, but uh, my question is, customers who do not buy, what's the typical argument? And, and is a general rule of thumb, how 
shorter payback time do you need to, uh, to, to convince a customer to, to invest? Yeah, I can take it because it's for both for cement and mining. The, of course, there is a group of companies working in cement and in mining who we don't see today as our customers. They are very much return on investment upfront related. They are not looking to the whole value chain. They are not looking for the whole productivity over the life cycle. That describes a little bit the uh, mix between what we call the mid-market, that is typical for these companies being in the mid-market versus the premium ones. We act only on the premium ones, in mining as well as in cement. But, but, but I'm sure not all your premium customers buy all your solutions. Yes. So if, even if, if, if you can offer them a 3% yield increase, why do they not buy? What's the, the, the reason? Customer relation, are we sitting close to them if they have an issue that we are, uh, that we are directly connected with them? Historical reasons, we were in some areas quite weak, we were not present. We have at first to build up the confidence that we, that we deliver that what we say and that we are with them. And that's the evolution with the new structure. Hi, Marcus Hanbrut from Capital Chevrolet. A uh, couple of questions. First, on the three to four percent market growth in in the mining. What first? What is the demand uh, demand assumption behind that? Because I assume that part of that three to four percent is the fall in all grades and all that that should also make the market grow faster. So, what's the demand assumption? And second, what has changed? since we sat here in 2017 where you were expecting the market to grow faster than, than you do today. So what's the difference? That's the first question. Yeah, I can take this question. Um, to your first question, uh, what is, uh, uh, I mean, this um, 3 to 4%, I think uh, the assumption is, as you say, the, that the consumption of uh, minerals and metals is lower than 3 to 4% because the global GDP is dropping and, of course, uh, the global industry production is contracting. So this is the reason why we believe the commodity demand is lower, but you see a higher growth because of the, as you say, depleting ore grades and, and these kind of things. So this is the assumption based on a lot of studies that have been done. They have estimated that the average uh, increase in run-off mine production, uh, a run-off mine ore production, will be roughly 4 to 5% over the next few years. So this is uh, based on more on what is required to produce in the mines, and we translate this, of course, into opportunities for our equipment. So this is not the commodity demand, what we are forecasting here. Why is this lower? As I said before, of course, the outlook, honestly, because based on the global economy and all the other things, what you read every day has, uh, you know, uh, subdued the assumptions uh, for the Industrial demand, and this is, of course, also has been an, inflag, uh, an impact with the reluctance of the customer to invest, and, of course, this is um, having an impact on the growth. That's why we see the growth uh, rates now a little bit lower than what we have seen it two or three years ago. Uh, thank you. And then my second question is, is on service. So, so I assume that the mixed part, of, of mix part is very important to get to the 10% and then to, to, to the high level. So, first of all, is are we seeing, I assume that we see the short-term pressure on capital is, is driving demand for services. 
I assume that's the case. Uh, what, yeah, if you could just confirm that. Is that the, one of the reasons why services grow faster? Is that not correlated? Yeah. <clears throat> I think what you, what you saw from Dian was that by localizing some of the service offers, we're able to capture more of what you can say smaller service jobs that we were not capturing before. So we believe that this whole regional structure we've created gets us closer to customers and enables us to capture more of the aftermarket business. Uh, but also what we see is when, uh, uh, when some of the big capital investments are not happening, then it's partly substituted with more, uh, with more service business. And when you're not getting new permits for, uh, for bigger mines, then of course you have to produce more in existing mines. And that is uh, captured to a very large extent in our service business. So what you saw from all the presentations is that service will grow faster than capital over time, and that is what you have in the mixed block in, uh, in the bridge to a higher profitability. How much of your install base are you capturing today? We have actually differences between mining and cement. Yeah, on well, the mining part, it really depends uh, from geography to geography. Uh, I mean, um, globally, uh, we are covering approximately between uh, 30 and 40 percent. Cement? Yeah, cement similar. Okay. There. Sylvie? Thank you. Thanks. A question regarding your midterm targets. Um, do you think that would be more kind of a straight line going, uh, going forward or would be more back-end loaded? Not to give guidance for 2020, obviously, but um, yeah, how should we think about this playing out in the order intake? The, that is more back-end loaded um, because Lars can take that actually quite detailed. Voila. Yeah, so I think what the, if you really look at the medium-term bridge, what is going to take us there? So the first thing was the mixed element where we, we do see that we will get a higher share of, uh, of service uh, already next year and then uh, in the following years. I think the, the message we try to convey through all the presentations is that service will have an underlying growth year on year uh, and will make certain that DN gets it and all the other regional presence gets it. So the, the assumption is that service have a, so like a, a growth throughout the period so that's uh, the one big element. We know next year we will have a lower margin in the capital business as, uh, as, as we presented also in the quarter three. So next year you will have, uh, what do you want to say, uh, difficulties in the capital business in mining or lower margins. Uh, and once that's out of the backlog, then uh, that will, of course, give us a lift in profitability uh, in the year after. So, uh, so that's more or less the two elements in the bridge. And then, of course, you have growth on top of that where... The more we grow in this period, the more operating leverage, and that gives you uh, another leg up. So, uh, so that's that's how we get there. And that goes for both divisions, right? Uh, that goes for both divisions. I think what you saw from uh, from from Jan was that the strategy in uh, in cement is really to uh, to grow the aftermarket, go more into upgrades, <clears throat> and to offset what you can say uh, maybe less projects in uh, in cement. So there, of course. The transition into more service and aftermarket will, into more upgrades, will take a little bit of more time before it can really compensate for, for maybe a declining project revenue over the coming years. Well, now you're talking about revenue, but order intake next year, should we also see a dip in the capital market? Is that what you're just trying to be sure we're talking about order intake or revenue? I'm talking about revenue. I'll mm -hmm. let Jan talk about order intake. When it comes to 
to order intake, we are not seeing uh, any bigger ch changes to the trends uh, that we have now. We will still focus on all uh, four offering types. Uh, we will still uh, go after. We have a, a healthy pipeline of projects, but what we are saying is for the long term, the growth part will come from, from upgrades, products, and, uh, and, and service. That's what we're saying. And then just a final question regarding, you know, the execution issues we saw or you report about in Q3. Is all of that behind us or is anything else we should be aware of uh, going into 2020? No, there's two things. Uh, one of, of it was uh, the corrections, what we did to the backlog in quarter three, but also the corrections uh, we have made on the backlog, which will be executed in the future, in the f next five to six quarters. And this is... Uh, the 120 million uh, impact, what we have said, you will, what you will see in, in the future. So um, we have um, reviewed and reassessed all the risks. The risks are under control, but unfortunately they have led to a lower profitability of the capital business, and to transfer this out will take uh, uh, four to six quarters. Okay, thanks. Just on uh, networking capital, considering you are guiding for uh, more service versus capital business, that should have a, in, I guess, a, a negative impact on the networking capital to sales ratio should go up as a consequence. Is that how we should think on the medium-term targets as well? Uh, once we are successful in really making a, a dramatic shift from, uh, from capital, to service, <clears throat> it will of course have an, a, what you say, an upwards pressure on uh, on working capital, and the cash flow generation of the company will, in general, improve because uh, the, the higher profitability we have in uh, in service. So it will give a pressure up on it. Uh, I would though say, if you look into the next uh, year or so, there are some uh, some areas where we can definitely improve, irrespective of any any mixed impact we have. So, as we talked about, these delays on certain projects is delaying the payments on these uh, on these projects. So, um, and some of our inventory we can definitely convert from from some things that are not moving as fast into more fast moving uh, aftermarket inventory. So. There is, of course, the mixed effect, but there is also some things where we, we still can work on internal things where we can improve. So, so networking capital to sales down in 2020 and then trending upwards afterwards. Is that how you think of it? <clears throat> so then it will, will basically follow what you can say, the two industry, the two segments. So if service goes up, that will come with high, uh, high uh, working capital, whereas capital will come with low, uh, low working capital. So you will see a mixed impact. But uh, there's quite a bit we can work on internally to improve it. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Ed Perry from HSBC. Just a short-term question on mining. What negative impact do you expect from recent disruptions in Chile? Um, and also, what are you seeing in terms of gold? Are you seeing a pickup in exploration spending there? I, I take that with Chile. Uh, Chile is, of course, a heavy political impact. And it's actually not only in Chile. It's uh, some unrest in Peru, Bolivia... And uh, let's see how that develops. Um, the, um, we know that the governments are working with it. There is quite a lot, uh, especially around Chile, but it doesn't seem to slow down. Um, we have daily contact with our Chile colleagues. It's a big market for us and other suppliers and other peers too. There we only can observe. What we see up to now, the impact is very minor, but there is already an impact. And to be very specific what the impact is, it has actually nothing to do with the mine sites. 
It is simply that the people have problems to travel there, to go to work, to go to work and to come back from work. The um, public transport infrastructure is quite hit. That is the, the issue in, uh, uh, in Chile. We don't see anything similar in Peru or in Bolivia yet, but of course we observe. Then the other thing was regarding gold. gold. That gold, when I hear gold, then I give it to Manfred. No, no, I would not say it like that. Uh, I mean, only the theme. <laughs> no, of course, uh, gold is a very exciting commodity because, as Dion was mentioning, with over $1,500 per ounce, uh, this is, of course, a very attractive uh, price at the moment. Uh, and as you are alluding to, there is a lot of good gold recovery. It just has taken longer to transfer these projects again into supply orders to us. We are working with a number of gold miners, uh, junior miners or mid-tier miners to develop their projects, but they are facing a lot of issues in terms of access to cash, but also access to licenses to operate. So, uh, again, the opportunities are there, quite strong, but uh, it's not happening as quickly as we anticipated. Thank you. And then perhaps just one more on cement, if I may. Um, in terms of the strategy to be more selective on projects, um, how contingent is this on steady underlying growth? And if we were to see a further turn in the market and a further increase in price pressure, would you step away from more projects and accept a decline in revenues, or would you turn back to perhaps having to accept slightly less profitable ones? So if we take the first part, first, we, we do not see a tendency that the, the project market is weakening. So you, that was the first uh, part of the question. So the, the, the project market is out there. Uh, what we said and what I said was that the projects that are out there, we are selective. We go after the premium segment. We go after the part that is willing uh, to pay for the values that we add. And, uh, and that selectivity... Uh, is, is based on, let's say, ticking the boxes, legal risks, commercial risks, uh, um, cash, and, of course, profitability. If we see we can tick these boxes, definitely projects is an important part of our future. What we said is that the primary growth will come from the three other pillars in our offering type, upgrade, service, and products. Uh, yeah, that's how I see it. Thank you. Uh, hello, it's uh, Robert from Morgan Stanley. Uh, just a couple of questions. One was just around the issue of um, project push-outs in mining. Um, how are you thinking about managing your cost base during that period? Is there a, a time where you just sort of sit tight and wait and say three months it's not going to be a big deal, six or 12 months we start to reduce headcount or um, potentially take out some capacity? So I guess just some of the sort of time frame and the flexibility on, on the cost side. And then the second one was just around, <clears throat> I guess, the digital theme. You mentioned it quite often. I guess over the next sort of three to five years, in, in light of your medium-term targets, what do you think your total outgoing spend is going to be in terms of investment in digital? Okay, I'll take the first one on the project execution. Um, what we have, the majority of the people that we require for the project executions are actually sitting in engineering. And there we have quite an agile system where we work with uh, a lot of third-party service providers. And with this uh, outsourcing of the engineering, we can manage part of the, uh, the fluctuations what we have in the industry. We have a team, a global team of core resources that we, of course, uh, maintain uh, over, the, over the cycle. So that's uh, how we are able to manage and, and uh, 
with this uh, outsourcing model the fluctuations in the project business, and it's not requiring any big adjustments in our own employees. Yeah. <clears throat> so on the on the digital part, what we were, the way we run digital is really that we have uh, what you say some of the costs uh, is fixed cost management cost that sits in the SGNA cost. So you can you can see a lot of that is already in the run rate. <clears throat> and then the money we spend on digital offerings and so on is part of our R&D spend, where uh, Michael, together with uh, Manfred and Jan, will discuss how can we implement uh, the digital tools into our products and our offerings. So it's part of the overall R&D spend that we will manage according to how good are the, the ideas we have in and, uh, and what can we generate from it. But it's really important that digital is not separate to the R&D bucket we have from, uh, for cement and mining. It is really an integrated card because... We see that over time uh, these things uh, uh, work more and more together. So whenever you make a product upgrade, it contains quite a bit uh, element of digital. But it has an upwards pressure on the SNA cost, and some of that is already in the numbers, and you will see a little bit more in, in the coming years. But we will, of course, try to offset it with other things. So, uh, so generally we would, uh, we would say it's part of the R&D spend, and we do not see any dramatic increases from here uh, in the R&D spend, um, but of course, depending on what the opportunities we see, we will evaluate if, if we'll continue with the level we have. Maybe that as an as a additional thing, if it comes to um, R&D spend and digital spend, we do a lot directly together with customers. When we have a, a new project, if I take mining and then cement too, and uh, we normally don't nominate that as a big R&D project. We have it directly with the customer. It's actually sales. Because we join forces, we do that together, and only a small part is then going into R&D spend. So we have actually significant more ongoing than you can read what we report under R&D and innovation. Why are we doing that? There are several reasons. Actually, it uh, decomplex the whole way of working. Second, not one single customer would like to be uh, known in um, the media and with their investor that they have for a big investment actually an R&D project. So, and I can be quite specific, if I may, with uh, Jan's business, the vertical roller mill, what we built, um, we had a sketch, or my guys had a sketch when they went over to the customer to say, actually, what we see is you should use... Um, a significant bigger mill that makes absolutely sense, it's more sustainable, more productive, and the total cost of ownership is significantly lower. We can calculate that, and we can build that for you. And then we got the order. So a part of it was R&D, but the majority was sales. And of course it works. That's not uh, really a need to mention. Or... Uh, Michael Peterson, SCB. Uh, first question is on in terms of uh, mining. Uh, you had a, a quite significant decline in the capital orders this year. What's that going to do to your installed base, and doesn't that affect the service order intake going forward if you do not see a pickup within the capital orders? Yeah, we had a, a little bit of a lumpiness and a declining capital order intake, but these are really uh, bigger projects and partly in uh, material handling and other areas which are not generating such a big um, uh, aftermarket anyway. So the equipment supplies, which are primarily driving our spare part and wear part consumption, is still on a good level. So we don't see any big impact in the future from the fluctuations what we get from the larger project business to our aftermarket. 
Thank you. And my second question is now you provide us with this uh, nice bridge from 2019 until the near term. What do we need to see to go from the uh, near term or midterm to the long term targets? What is missing uh, there for you to generate between the 10 and 13 percent EBITDA margin? It is actually the same, uh, the same areas of improvement what we have already up to the midterm targets. Uh, an improved product mix with more service share in it, with more profitable product, standard modularized products where we work heavily on. That is always going a little bit uh, um, not enough mentioned and the importance of that. So the mix is there. We have growth with new technologies, what we showed today, what we are doing, especially in mining with tri-stack tailings, ROL, and in cement with new technologies out for the sustainability to help customers to be CO2 neutral. And last but not least, we have potential to be more profitable with the products what we sell. The, the profitability in the different areas. And uh, to we, um, yeah, a uh, few quarters ago, we were always asked, you focus so much on your total cost ratio, more than anyone else. There's an, the reason for that lies in the product mix. We know that we will have uh, less ambitious targets in big projects business in cement. And for that, we have to manage the cost base very actively. What we do quite well, I think, when we look into that we are quite uh, equal over several quarters now, no matter that growth is there. So we know if we get larger projects in, they are lower in profitability, and we have to counteract with that on leverage, cost leverage. And it's a um, yeah, mathematical thing to calculate how many projects we actually can take with lower profitability until it hits us really negatively on the bottom line, where we can't compensate with the leverage. And that is exactly how we do it. We look into... How many projects of a size can we allow and what is the minimum profitability what we have to have? We generate with the big projects, yes, quite a, uh, quite a volume, but uh, the margin, and actually quite a lot of EBITDA, but the margin is, of course, then suffering if that portion gets too much. There was. Thank you. That's Arsene from Great Swiss. Um, just wanted to ask about the assumption on retaining the cost savings uh, in the 10% midterm margin target. Would you like to take that? Yeah, so, in, in the in the midterm target, um, what that's based on is basically not increasing the uh, SGNA cost base to a very large extent. Um, of course, when you look. A little bit further out, uh, you saw as an example that we started uh, sales offices in certain geographies. So we will have upward pressure on, uh, on sales costs to cover uh, the, whole, uh, the whole installed base. Um, so what we assume is that basically we can keep the SGNA costs as a percentage uh, quite low. And as we go into the next couple of years, when we deliver the, uh, the growth rates that, uh, that uh, cement and mining uh, is showing, uh, that we grow the SGNA costs much less than we grow the top line. So a big element in, the, in what you can say the long-term card is, uh, is that we get operating leverage from, from our cost base. Uh, so that's, that's quite important. The other thing is, of course, also you see a mix impact between cement and mining where our more profitable part of our business, mining, will grow faster than cement, and that gives us uh, a mix impact uh, between the two industries uh, over time because there is, uh, the more profitable part grows faster than the, 
less profitable part. Thank you. And may I also check on the level of price impression in cement business, which you see given that two main competi European competitors are still loss-making? I would say that, as, uh, as, as I said to the previous question, we do not see a bigger change in, uh, in behavior in the marketplace today. Uh, we see, uh, let's say, competition for the bigger jobs, for the smaller jobs, and and we meet uh, our group of uh, European competitors on most of the bids we do. Obviously, um, what we do is to try and get out early together with the customers, build a relationship in our region structure, and to have an advantage uh, when the projects, when the upgrades and so on come out. Um, but I would say we do not see uh, higher pricing pressure right now than we have seen before. Thank you very much. And my last question is around uh, the backlog margins uh, in minerals business, in mining business. I think in your statement you were saying that you've taken actions to ensure that expected margins will be more closely aligned with, um, with delivered margins. Can you maybe give us some examples of what that actually means? Thank you very much. Yeah, that means that uh, we have been over-optimistic in the efficiency in the project execution and that we will go into the new estimates with a more realistic cost base. That means that uh, you will not see any corrections in the cost base because we have started with a more realistic one. And, and uh, that is really why we are confident that the order we are booking in the future will have a, a more stable contribution margin that we can generate. And is it fair to conclude that you've reviewed all projects in the backlog? Yeah, that... Uh, the reassessment of the backlog, that is exactly what I mentioned before, was where we have taken down roughly the expected or the expected backlog that has happened already, and that you will see in the mix going forward. And then the new ones, we will enter them into the backlog with a more realistic assumption so that no corrections are needed. Thank you very much. A few questions from my is Klaus Anna from Nordea. Coming back to this backlog issue, um, so you are saying that you were too optimistic. That was also the, uh, the message at Q3. Um, going forward, when you're receiving a same type of project, will you then accept a lower margin, or will you uh, price uh, these type of products with a premium versus you have done in the past? What does it really mean that you are more realistic in your assumptions? No, we will not uh, take projects which uh, with a lower margin. The reason why we're making these corrections are different ones. It is a combination of internal efficiency issues, which we will fix with the new structure, and it's also a combination of making business with certain customers where it was very difficult to enforce our contract. And with our new approach with the contract and claim and risk management, we will also take care of this. So we are just more careful. We are operating in certain culture where the claim management and the pushing the customer for paying additional costs on projects has not been implemented. But with the hub structure, we will address this. We will not allow that people are providing extra services and extra time on projects without asking the customer for compensation. So it's a mix of things that will ensure that in the future, we cannot ask the market to compensate for our internal inefficiencies. We will fix that. And then we can still live with the prices we are achieving in the market. Okay, and then uh, my second question goes to this midterm targets for both divisions. What is the key risk for not achieving these targets? Yeah, the key risk, of course, lies in the, in, in the overall business sentiment. That's clear. 
we think that um, we are well positioned. We have, uh, yeah, you can actually say, based on our regional weakness from historical reasons, we have quite a good potential in front of us that no one can take away. We have it. We see that we are successful where we, where we go actively close to the customer in relation. So what is the risk? The risk is, of course, uh, the macroeconomics. But we don't see that as a risk because it will hit each and every one. That's, that's then the environment where we have to act in. And um, we look quite a lot, area by area, um, how business develops, where we see political, like in Chile. I take Chile as, a US, uh, as an example, US, China, and so on. There are not only downsides, absolutely not. The news on the world market, if I may say so, is quite negative at the moment. When we go around, there's a lot of more positive talk. Okay, so there's no internal risk. It's all about macro. And then you, and if that's okay, then you achieve the target. Is that what I hear? Uh, you know, um, since several years we work on uh, improving structure, KPIs, and so on, and we had one hit now, one hit in six, seven years, and we take care of that. We didn't like that, we take care of it. And it's then gone, and we take our hit and our learnings out of it, which is absolutely right. So when we look into internal efficiency, we have today a complete different setup of control versus that what we had years back. And Dion said it nicely. Um, he has uh, two groups now sitting on him and controlling. Yes, um, I would not call it controlling. I would call it support, help, <laughs> enforcement, encouragement. So, And that helps a lot because we are acting in more than 100 countries. It helps if you look from two angles on everything what you do. And that will ensure that things are better monitored and earlier identified. For us, it's more important to look into how, is, how are the macro and the local, local economics developing. If we have, to, to be very frank here, if we have a big salmon project undersigned in front of us, and then we have a political change in a country that has a huge impact on us, it can have the impact that we immediately get the order, or it takes another two, three years, or it completely disappears. That is what we deal with if it comes to these uh, bigger projects. But if it comes to aftermarket, uh, overall product sales, that is more constant, and that floats as the others have it. Okay, thanks. It's uh, Robert from uh, Morgan Stanley again. Just a couple of follow-up questions. Um, the first one was, I think, just around M&A and the portfolio. Um, there's obviously been a, a fairly significant merger within the sort of downstream mining sector um, recently. I just would be interested to hear your thoughts on how, so far, the competitive dynamics have changed in discussions with customers and what your expectations are for the next few years. And are there any bits of your portfolio that you feel like you need to add to um, in, in the next sort of two to three years is the first one? And then the other one was just around some of the environmental offerings you have around uh, rapid oxidative leaching or the tailings offerings and these kind of things. How, how are those discussions going with customers in an environment where we're talking about larger projects being pushed out? Is that a segment that's being disproportionately hit right now because of uh, cautiousness or are people still willing uh, to spend on those, uh, on those things? Yeah, I take that M&A part. Um, and the rest you take. <laughs> the, uh, we were very public uh, several years ago what we do with the money. Uh, first thing is we have to be capitalized properly. We are. Second thing is we pay dividend. We are. Third thing is organic growth. We do a lot. 
We do huge amount. The whole organization is up and running on that. And we think we are quite successful. We announce each quarter some landmark innovation and there's significant more behind. So the fourth is then to have acquisitions. And we look for acquisitions. We did some. Uh, AUTEC, IMP, mining systems from, from Sandvik. We, we do that and we divest it. Bulk material handling, for example. And why are we doing that? We look into M&A as an opportunity to get additional business and or competence in the right time with the right reference. If we can't do that organically, then we look for, for M&A. So that's, that's the thing. We are completely open for it. If it comes to the consolidation in mining and so on, that's actually your area if you would like to talk. No, that's uh, not too much to talk about the consolidation. You talked about it, but I'm happy to talk about the uh, things, uh, what you mentioned about the ROL and especially the tailings, what interest we see here. I think... Um, I was in Brazil last week. Yeah. You might have seen that uh, Vale came out and said, for example, about 10% of the tailing stamp have a structural problem. So you see the urgency what these companies are having. And they're very eager to talk. A lot of these companies have not triggered the investment yet, but they're all under pressure. I think, as I mentioned, the ICMM had just a meeting uh, where they have asked 800 miners to each confirm the status of the tailing stamps, and if there's any issues, they need to report and, and, and so on and so forth. So there is a, quite a, a movement in the industry. Um, it has not really shown up in our own intake yet, but we are, as a front-runner, well-positioned, and we expect this to happen in the not-too-distant future. And maybe just to follow up on that, how, how do um, competitors, other technologies, so whether it's uh, pumping or dewatering or maybe slightly less efficient methods of uh, taking water up and, and your offering that's significantly cheaper. Are people making bigger traction on those types of orders right now because the spending is tight, or, or is that not the case? No. I mean, um, you might have seen Codelco, for example, just went out and said, okay, we're, we're going to invest a billion dollar in a desalination plant in Chile to supply some of their mines and so on. So it's, uh, they're all under pressure to find solutions for the water. The, of course, the solutions are different. And we are working on a wide range, primarily in the dewatering of the tailings. And we are working with this. I mean, one of our main competitors buying filters from us because we are a leader in providing filters for a certain amount of red mud and other materials. So we are there, um, and we are working with the customers. And, and I think um, that's really where we are, will be positioned. But we are not saying that we have the solution for all the tailings problems. But maybe the, a little bit to open the books. The, of course, everyone has a philosophy. And uh, one philosophy, what we see in the market, is to use the same filter technology simply faster, that, that it works faster to get the volume through. And we don't believe in that. We think that when you, uh, when you deal with these 200,000-ton plants, uh, it doesn't help if you have 20 or 30 filter, filter presses standing there because you need quite a lot of people to observe them and to work with it and to change the filter gloves. So we decided years back to, to go into large equipment, really large equipment. You saw one picture of the filter plate, which um, has then a filter cake size, five by three meter. If, if you see that, that is nine meter high and roughly, I think, seven meter wide. And you have 100 or 120 plates in one unit. You can imagine this is a big unit. 
actually for us not we we know these units but the it is if you compare it with normal what you what you see on industrial plants it's quite a big unit because we believe if you have three four five of these filters fully automatic in the change with the filter cloths with everything this is significant easier to maintain and to handle and to operate for the customer and we talked with customers we found not one customer who told us come with small equipment in a big amount they all don't like that they would like to have big single equipment and that's it and you see that in grinding the big sack mills they don't want to have five small sack mills they want to have one or two big ones that's typical the movement in the in the mining industry and to give a little bit from a timing we actually proceeded quite well in the last two years the, there was a study out and i have to remind us in it no matter how important that is with the tailing stems and sustainability mining needs 30 years that 50% of the miners are using a new technology and we are all, after 2 3 years already talking our a little bit longer from the announcement that we have pilot plants i never saw in more than 30 years of my time in the mining industry that fast movement for other industries this is very slow i agree especially when i look to digital and telecommunication but this is mining the cycle takes 10 years and we are well positioned for that and we are don't believe that they sit in a single dark room and do something and then they call us we are part of that we are with them we test with them we work with them we use their sites we use their people too to help us to have the right product and they help us or ask us how to do things better there is a huge potential and then i stop most of the technology what you see today out in the industry in mining and partly in cement actually cement is better than mining if you take a jaw crusher what you still see all over the world this is a patent from 1850 1850 in these days the ore content was i don't know copper 8% 9% we now talk about an ore content in average of 0.4% i have to dig out 99.6% to get the copper if you have younger kids and uh, they are a little bit sustainable related tell them that they look to you what are you doing so and we have to come with new technologies rl is a step to take care of the tailings is a step we are well positioned we have a good mood we have a good competence in the company and we have one thing which is very important we have a very good link to our customers in it and we are seen as an innovate innovation driver in the industry thank you yeah so um i was just of course by my group cfo informed that we are actually over the time is there any last question don't see thanks a lot oh there's one yeah i minus here with with ubs again um sorry to push this point a little bit but i mean if you look at the three different buckets you aim to or levers you aim to pull to to get to your new midterm margin target i, I think no none of them were really a surprise but but what would help us a little bit to to track this over time would be how much you expect from each that would definitely help yeah. <laughs> i could say yes 
but uh, I don't think that would be enough as an answer. Um, <clears throat> no, as, as I heard, what, what was the building blocks that would give us to the to the to the midpoint of the guidance? Oh, sorry, so the mid medium term uh, medium term targets. Um, and there, I just have to say, we we cannot be exactly specific on these because one of them is operating leverage and. As we don't know what the total revenue will be in the medium term, then that's a little bit difficult. Um, we do see that, uh, that service will be a growing part of our business. So you will see that in every single quarterly announcement we come with, what is the order intake in service? And that is the one biggest driver we have for, for getting there. Uh, and, of course, we will continue to report on what is the progress on, on the backlog execution from, from mining, which is another big lever. So... Uh, so we will report on these, and operating leverage really comes with the revenue. So you can more or less also, uh, what you can say, follow that on a, on a quarterly basis. But these are, of course, uh, uh, not parameters that are 100% in our control, but these are the driving forces for the medium-term guidance or targets. Targets, yeah. So I don't see any other hand signal. Then I would like to close the session. I really urge you to go to the booth, if you didn't, to look into it. We choose voluntarily on that capital market day not to go very much into technology of single products and so on, what we, what we have. Only a little bit in digital. But we have these booths, and it's quite amazing and quite interesting what is possible with the connection of digital with competence in cement and in mining. No matter how much you look into it, we thank you all that you took the time to come here and to be with us for quite a long time and to listen to all the slides and all the information. And thanks a lot for um, yeah, having a safe trip home too. So see you soon. Thank you.